0: 123 Testing 123. This is Radio Free Mormon on the Air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Movie Review, Under the Banner of Heaven. Last Friday, my good friend from Ramiumptum Ruminations and I sat down to do an in-depth review of the recent Hulu series Under the Banner of Heaven. Now I know I've titled this as movie review and not series review, but calling it a series review didn't really capture my intent. This is a movie review. We'll just call it a seven-hour movie for purposes of this podcast. Rami Ruminations is another podcast under the Mormon Discussions umbrella. If you have not had a chance to listen to Rami Umptum Ruminations, there is a lot of in-depth Thoughtful and thought-provoking content on that podcast. I enjoy it very much, and I think that you will too, if you give it a try, which I hope you will. Also, I want to thank everybody who has donated to Radio Free Mormon and would ask that if you have not made a donation yet to Radio Free Mormon, that you go to radiofreemormon.org today and make a donation, hopefully a continuing monthly donation, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now, on to the movie review of Under the Banner of Heaven. Play the tape. Welcome back to another episode
1: of Rami Ruminations. Today's episode is going to be very special. It's one that I've wanted to do for a while, but just waited for timing and also for the show to finish all the episodes. Uh, Today, I'm going to discuss Under the Banner of Heaven with the famous rfm so welcome back to the show radio free mormon
0: hi how are you doing have i been here before you're welcoming me back you have i am welcoming you back you were you <laughs> here <laughs> i can't even remember what i had for breakfast this morning that's all right no i had you bow on the show back in march i believe oh that long ago so that's like three months ago no wonder i can't remember it that's been like 90 days yeah, we discussed we discussed the law last
1: time, and your expertise with the law and how that relates to the, how the the churches run. I'm sorry. Yes, I, it's all coming back to me now. What a great episode that
0: was! Now that I can remember it.
1: Yeah, it was it was a fun conversation. Today we're going to discuss under the banner of heaven. We both have mixed feelings about the show, and we both come to it with very different lenses. So I think this is going to be an interesting conversation. You were much more focused on. How the law and how pyrie was working with his boss, and how some of these things played out, and I was much more focused on the storytelling and the elements along those lines, so it'll be it'll be interesting to get our different our uh, unique perspectives on this.
0: Are we supposed to give a spoiler alert?
1: Yeah, let's let's say spoiler alert. Now I know it wasn't released uh, over the pond, so I think it's just in the United States right now, maybe Canada. So for our listeners uh, abroad that haven't seen it yet, yes, there will be spoilers. I'm sorry to say, Brenda dies in the end. I was really hoping when I got to the last episode that she might get away. It's funny how that is. Like knowing how it's going to end, you, you know how it's going to end from episode one, and you still root for her
0: even though you
1: know it's, it's not going to end well for her.
0: Yeah. And I know that that sounds uh, like I'm just being funny when I say that. But there was honestly a big emotional part of me that really wanted her to get away. And I was being crushed at every step along the way when she's trying to get away. And she's got her sister telling her to, say, to stay. She's got church authorities telling her to stay. She's got everybody in the world telling her to stay. And I'm going, don't listen to them. Get the hell out of there. When It made for some really compelling storytelling
1: because as the listeners, we know that she's making the wrong choices. We know that all of these decisions will eventually lead to her death. But they they showed it in considerable detail. And it was so gripping because you just, you wanted her to somehow escape. You wanted her to somehow change history. But that isn't how it ended. I wanted it to be like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. (laughs) Good movie.
0: We've got two hours to cover seven episodes.
1: Yeah, I think we might be able to do at least
0: one or two in, in, uh, in two hours.
1: <laughs> we got <laughs> to do all kidding. seven, though. <laughs> no, seriously.
0: If I went into the detail, I, I've watched this. I've watched it again in order to prepare for this podcast. And I will tell you that there's a lot that I did not pick up on the first time. This series does reward multiple viewings. Yeah, there's there's a
1: lot going on. There's a lot of like beautiful like one-line zingers that are just so quotable and memorable. I wrote down a bunch of those. Like it's there's a lot to take from this show. I think both from a believing perspective and a non-believing as well because they they did a fairly good job of portraying some of the positive and negative
0: aspects of the faith. I think just about every kind of Mormon and even fundamentalist Mormon was represented somewhere in this series.
1: Oh, yeah. One of the complaints, at least speaking to some believing members that I have heard, is that they they showed a lot of the temple and they showed the temple garment and some of the rituals that have been previously taken out. I don't think you can tell the story accurately without depicting what they showed in the temple. And specifically, what I want to bring up is there's a 19th century short story writer. His name's Anton Chekhov. One of his main points that he would always tell... Never heard of him. <laughs> Did he have a cherry orchard or anything? So Chekhov has this writing principle that he would tell all of his friends as they were trying to, trying to um, write. And it's this principle called Chekhov's gun. What he says is that if you show a gun in Act 1... It needs to be fired in act two. And so it's just this writing principle. It's, it's, you have to tell your audience what you're going to do without really telling them what you're doing. And the whole show, they're talking about blood atonement. They're, you know, blood atonement is mentioned every single episode, but you can't fully understand what blood atonement is, especially if you've never been through the temple, if you don't actually show the ritual. I feel like they did it as, tactfully and tastefully as they could. They didn't talk about any of the associating tokens and signs. They didn't go into any detail about anything that's discussed there. The only thing they did was show the promises and the penalties. From my perspective, you cannot tell this show, you cannot tell this story in a compelling way for the viewer to understand the murders without that knowledge. So if you don't come to the table as a member of the LDS church or any of the offshoot branches of Mormonism, you are not going to understand why she was murdered the way she was murdered. You have to have that knowledge coming into this.
0: Right. And I, I agree with you about the penalty, especially the slitting of the throat. And this is uh, in one of the episodes. We, we, we can get into that later if we have to. But this is basically the entire series like a movie. At this point, yes, um, the slitting of the throat—very poignant and foreshadowing—with Brenda doing the um, the sign of the slitting of the throat on her wedding day in 1982, I think it was, so a couple years before the murders in 1984. I think that. Um, she didn't quite understand that it's supposed to be with a thumb because she sort of does it with a, her finger and her her forefinger and her thumb put together almost like she's unzipping her throat. But it's her first time through, so we can forgive her that much.
1: Yeah, I, I'm sure that, that she'll be forgiven. Um, now, I didn't go through. I, I went through after those were already removed. So um, the only times I have seen it has been in videos like this. You don't know what you missed. <laughs> Oh, I do. I've done the research and uh, yeah, it just kind of baffles my mind. But that's a conversation for another
0: day. (laughs) This is another example, though. I want to use this. uh, First off, let me tell you that I think this is a remarkable series, incredible acting, incredible directing. I think there were some places where the writing could have been tightened up, perhaps. And this is a good example, because you mentioned that the only thing being shown from the temple was this penalty. But actually, there's a flashback. Within the flashback, it sounds like we're in the book of Mosiah now, but there's a, <laughs> within the flashback of going back to her first time to the temple, then she's talking to her sisters in the creation room, which obviously they reconstructed for this and they use it as much as they possibly can. Cause I'm sure there was some expense involved, but, uh, and I'm, I think it's the creation room in the Salt Lake temple. I've never been to that temple, but I've seen the pictures before. It looked more like an Idaho temple. Oh really? Okay. So maybe it's an Idaho temple. I've been I've been to some of the Salt
1: Lake ones and some of the Idaho ones. There were more motifs of like nature and like deer and elk and such in the Idaho temples. And so that's kind of what it was more reminiscent of. And if her parents lived up there,
0: that would make more sense if she got married where her parents live. Yes. Good point. However, in that flashback within the flashback, now she's talking to her sisters in the flashback and they're doing the temple sign, but then she flashes back to having the washing and anointing done on her. And I think this was very tempting to the filmmaker. By the way, let me preface this by saying that I always remember back when I was in drama class in college and our teacher, Jim Daniels, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Was it McDaniel? Anyway, Jim, (laughs) he'll probably forgive you. I hope so. Anyway, (laughs) he, he talked to us about, you know, there are no right choices in acting and directing, by the way, there are not, right choices and wrong choices there are perhaps more effective choices and less effective choices so it's not something about that's right or wrong it's more different so i'm not here trying to judge anything other than putting my opinion into it and so this is just my opinion and other people can have different opinions and that's fine so my opinion is that it's very tempting to want to cram so much into this series that it becomes a bit diffuse And it loses its focus. And I know it was tempting to want to put that in there, but the washing and anointing bit really doesn't support the theme of the movie, which is the violence. There's this weird, you know, kind of, she almost touched my private parts, is what Brenda's telling her sisters. And uh, she's shocked by it. And I get it. It's just that we have a limited amount of time in this series to tell a story. And This is one of the most painful things that I have to do on a limited basis with the podcast or I'll have ideas that I want to share, but then I have to say, wait a second, that doesn't really support the theme of my my particular podcast that I might be doing. It has to go on the cutting room floor. And those are very difficult choices to make. I think this might have been an example where that could have been left out because what it ends up doing is not supporting the theme of her cutting her throat which is, of course, the link between the ancient Mormonism and the violence associated with it and modern day Mormonism. There are these vestiges of the violence in the Mormon past that continue into 1984 with the penalties in the temple. There's a few other things that they do that I think are very good. But when you add in the part about her getting washed and anointed and her feeling uncomfortable about it, well, that may be a valid thing to have. It ends up detracting from the penalty, which is the main point, I think.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. I feel like they, they did a number of scenes that felt um, as though it were fan service. I don't know if that's a term that you're familiar with, but they, um, when you have a target audience, you know, the main people that are going to, that are going to love and enjoy your show, you'll do a scene or show something that will make your audience cheer or root, but really, does nothing for the story. No, nothing compelling is actually happening. And that's, that's kind of the vibe that I get from some of these scenes. They're appealing to this ex Mormon community. That's going to devour this show, but it doesn't do a whole lot for actually for the overarching narrative. And in my opinion, I think that that they should have cut some of these things and give more, given more emphasis to some of the storylines that, that really needed, an extra scene or two to be compelling and, and we'll get there down the road, but specifically the the storyline I'm referring to is the, the women's suffrage, the, where they're uh, being oppressed by their husbands um, leading up to the finale. And I felt like it wasn't as emotionally compelling as it could have been had they cut out some of these scenes and added some, some more, um, Scenarios that would have given
0: more drive to these other women's stories. Okay, very good. And I know that you had mentioned in our phone conversations leading up to today to today, a character that you felt was somewhat superfluous that was given a good deal of time to, which is the fictional detective Pyrie. His mother. I feel
1: like the way that she was handled, um it, it felt like her whole storyline. Apart from episode one or two, and in, in the first episodes of a show, you're always going to introduce a character. You're always gonna you're gonna show them why they're unique, why you should care about this person. And having a mother with dementia is an excellent character background. Um, you know, it really makes you feel for his his personal life in the first few minutes of actually getting to know him. But when you continue to have her in the story, she doesn't do very much for the actual narrative that they're trying to tell and i feel like the rest of her storyline was just to get to the to the zinger in episode 3 or was it 4 when he's with the bishop i think it is episode 3 yes so at the end of episode 3 he's with his bishop and his bishop makes this point that um you know women struggle with their feelings more than men and you know we we really shouldn't rely on drugs to handle our emotions or our mental health and i feel like her whole storyline was just so that they could say that line. And all of the screen time she got was leading up to that. And I don't feel like that really did anything
0: for the whole investigation with the Lafferty's. Right. And um, I agree with you on that. I thought that uh, I didn't understand why she was important to the story. And by the end of it, I'm still having the same question in my mind. There's also the difficulty that this is a cast of characters That is large. There are so many people to keep track of. And the first time through, I am having trouble myself keeping track of just the Lafferty's for crying out loud. They've got, you know, the patriarch. By the way, what is the patriarch's name in this? Do you know? Did you ever find that out? Ammon Lafferty. No, it's not. Isn't that funny? Because I thought it was Ammon Lafferty too. And then I looked it up on the internet. His his name is actually Watson. That's Watson Lafferty Sr.
1: Because on, on the IMDb for Under the Banner of Heaven, it says Ammon Lafferty.
0: Okay. Well, I wondered about that because then I looked it up and I thought, did I get that wrong? Is he talking about Ron Lafferty? And it's Ron Lafferty's middle name, Ammon or something like that. So, so okay. So then I was correct the first time through that his name, the patriarch's name is Ammon. Yeah. Yeah. In the show. But,
1: um, you know, according to your research, then uh, it was, that was not his real name. Yeah, apparently it was Watson.
0: Anyway, not as, regardless not as Mormon of a
1: name. No, not at all. <laughs> but that doesn't like that sort of thing doesn't matter, but I can see making a change trying to throw in kind of more of the, the LDS vibe to the characters.
0: Can I tell you um, another change that I thought was unusual was creating not only a fictional detective, which I get to be the guy who we're seeing this through. Uh, all these events and going from his character arc of being a true believing Mormon to being, I guess, a Pimo at the end. Big spoiler alert.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's that's kind of where it left off. But And I have some mixed feelings about that too. And, and we can get to there in a
0: sec, but keep going with what you're saying. Right. And what was I saying? I'm still, I'm still back on this Ammon thing. I need to just leave it alone because it just confused <laughs> me after I looked it up and I thought I got it wrong and he must have... You were saying that there was another inconsistency
1: or another change that bothered you.
0: Another change that bothered me. Oh, here's where I get to name drop. I was uh, talking with Richard Dutcher the other day. No, I called him up because I had had dinner with him a couple of weeks ago and I got to meet him and we got along just famously, I think, and we, we closed the restaurant down. We were there talking for four hours. Oh, Wow about movies and things like that and he had said he was not watching this because his practice is to wait on a series like this until they're all released hang on a second here so he so he binges them yeah until they're all released and then he binges them so the last one dropped last week by the way today's date is june 10th 2022 that we're recording this for some reference the last episode drops last week And I called him up yesterday, knowing we're going to be doing this podcast today. And I say, Richard, have you binged those yet? Because I wanted to pick your brain about them. And he goes, no, I haven't yet. And I said, well, could you watch them all today? And I'll call you at midnight tonight. (laughs) He he, he laughed too. He laughed too. No, that wasn't going to happen. But anyway, we'll talk about it sometime later, he and I for the listeners that aren't
1: familiar with Richard Dutcher, uh, Dutcher, pardon me, Richard Dutcher, uh, uh, one of the, his famous works is God's army. And he did, he's done another, a uh, number of other movies, but,
0: um, he's a filmmaker.
1: Yes. an, an
0: indie filmmaker. Right. Who does films about, uh, who has done, uh, very successful films about Mormons and Mormonism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So having said that, um, He was confused about why it was that they just didn't go with American Fork, which is the actual city in Utah where this happened, but instead created a fictional police department as well, which I think was East Rockwell.
1: Something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he knew that much about it. And he was saying, why do you want to come up with a fictional police department when, (laughs) I mean, what is the point of it, right?
1: Yeah. uh, Since it is historically based, um, I don't see why they why they couldn't do uh, real places, real police departments. I mean, they're changing names, obviously, um, and they're taking liberties with with what really happened in a number of places. But a detail like this, it doesn't really matter. So it's one of those like stylistic, like maybe they just wanted a, a different name than American Fork. I, I, I'm not sure. I have no idea why they would make a change like that.
0: You know, I don't know either, but I'm sure that some thought process went into it that I'm not privy to, because obviously the director slash writer, they're the same, I believe. I believe Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Came up with that decision. So maybe there was a political reason for it or something. I don't know. And by political, I just mean, you know, not wanting to cross any lines or being able to access some other kind of, uh, I don't know, station Police station, not have to have it be a real state. I have no idea why, but it was it was a curious <laughs> thing. So anyway, we've got a, a fictional police detective and a fictional police detective's mother with dementia, and we've talked about um, different things that seem to detract from the overall thrust of the show. Can I tell you one of the things in episode one that bothered me? Okay, and I hope this is okay. By the way, let me also say Andrew Garfield. Fantastic actor. I wish that he had had more to do in this show than look concerned and anxious, which was pretty much everything that he could do.
1: He was pro- he was the top billed cast on the show. He's the show runner, but I don't even I don't think he had the most lines in the show, and I don't think he had the most screen time in the show. He was he was used as a lens for the audience to see the whole story. And I think that's, that was the purpose of his character. But I mean, you have, you have Sam Worthington and, um, and Wyatt Russell who played Ron and Dan Lafferty and they had way more screen time than Andrew Garfield did. And then the, uh, Daisy Edgar Jones, she stole the show. She probably had, she didn't have as much as The, the actress who played Brenda. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The actress who played Brenda, she probably had as about, about as much screen time as Andrew Garfield in total in the show, but she had more lines and more compelling lines. Her storyline and her acting was superb. She stole the show in my opinion. But as you said, Andrew Garfield, he he just was contemplative and kind of like concerned the whole time. And all of like the, the acting chops that he brought
0: to the table were far exceeded What was required for him in this role. Right. And I did not expect that Andrew Garfield, who, by the way, is and will always be the best Spider Man. Oh, I 100% agree with you there. 100%. I I was watching the very final scene of the very final episode where he's out there at the lake watching the sunrise with his mother and his arm around her. And I got a total Aunt May vibe from that
1: scene. (laughs) That's
0: fantastic. Well, anyway, anyway. So, having said that, and and the the guy, I'm sorry, Sam Worthington did an incredible job. So did and the gal who played Brenda, whose name you already mentioned. Yeah, Daisy Edgar Jones. She did an incredible job, and uh, so did um, Gill, the guy who played Bill Taba, Pyrie's detective partner. The pirate. yes, yes, uh,
1: yeah. Gill Birmingham is his name. Yeah, he did fantastic. I've got IMDB right here, so I've got all their names.
0: (laughs) Perfect. They did so great. And I want to say that out of everything, I thought that there were so many wonderfully constructed, directed, and acted scenes in this series. And we'll talk about a few of them. I just felt like the, the sum total of the series didn't quite... Okay, the total of the entire series... Did not equal the sum of its parts. Yes.
1: That is an excellent way of putting it. I feel like they had the buildup um was phenomenal. You and I had a conversation early on. I think we had seen three episodes, four episodes, and you had a lot of complaints, and I was still like, you know, doe-eyed, like loving where it was going, loving everything about it. I tend to ignore some of the inconsistencies, and I'll I'll give allowances for things like that more than um. More than others, maybe. But uh, I was coming into the last few episodes really hopeful because I loved everything that they were doing, everything that the actors and actresses were doing in the show. But I feel like episode seven, they just could not stick the landing. They had everything set up to be a phenomenal miniseries, but they just, there was some emotional drive that I felt was lacking in the story right at the very end. It was like the last season of Game of Thrones. Exactly. Exactly.
0: So if we start the Oh, go ahead. Oh, go I ahead. was going to say
1: side note. If you loved uh, Brenda, the, the actress that played Brenda, if you loved her acting, she has a movie coming out later this year that is going to be phenomenal. It's called where the crawdads sing. So go check that out. Watch the trailer. It's going to be really very good. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. That's the same actress. It's the same actress. And she, she, oh man, it's going to be really, really good. Like I I love everything that she does. So she's she's awesome. And, and this movie is going to be really good. My, my wife is so excited for this movie. Well, I am too. But just so you don't forget, the new Jurassic Park movie opens today. You know, I had a friend that watched it last night on opening night and he- No, 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 no. Don't do the spoiler on me. No spoilers. No spoilers. Does okay. it have dinosaurs in it? <laughs> There, you know, I've heard there were dinosaurs, (laughs) but I can't confirm or
0: deny. Yeah. In this movie, the dinosaurs are played by uh, Jeff Goldblum, Laura Dern, and Sam, (laughs) whatever that guy's name (laughs) is, I can't remember. That was good.
1: That was pretty good.
0: Thank you. That wasn't too bad, was it? (laughs) All right. I interrupted you. I can't remember what we were saying. Okay, let's go to the beginning. All right. Because yeah. a lot of the things that bothered me about this have to do with police work. All right. Uh, because and, it seems and you like have an, some, um, some knowledge of police
1: work and uh, the inner workings of the law, if I'm not mistaken. I have a little bit. I've
0: been a, a, an attorney practicing criminal <laughs> law and working closely with police for over three decades.
1: So, oh, yes, so you know, a little bit, a little bit I, more than,
0: than I know, a little bit. But My <laughs> gosh, it's like there was no there was no police protocol that they didn't violate somewhere during the course of this series. And I thought it was remarkable. But let me just tell you what I mean. OK, first off, first off, the opening scene, we've got Andrew Garfield. He's out in the lawn. He's playing with his kids. It's wonderful. He, we're seeing what a great Mormon daddy is and what's just a what great daddy is. Right. He gets the call. His wife comes out and says, hey, you got a call. He takes the call. This is the report of the double murders because that's where he goes after that. Now, there's two things about this. First off, I'm going to say the thing about the double murders. A lot is made during the first few episodes of Detective Pyrie trying to keep this story under wraps so it doesn't go public that there's been a double murder in this little residential neighborhood, in this little town of East Rockwell. Okay. Who the hell called it in in the first place? Who is it who's reporting this murder? Somebody
1: found him. It wasn't Alan and it wasn't any of Brenda's family.
0: Right. Somebody found these bodies. Somebody reported it. And I'm just saying that the odds of being able to keep this quiet are unlikely. That's about the nicest way I can say it. There's no way it's going to be under wraps after this because somebody found what was going on. Somebody reported it. They got police there. They got the tape up. I mean, this is a duplex. Remember? There's a lady who lived right next door who sees Ron waiting at the door and later on reports about the car.
1: Yeah. I didn't realize it was a duplex until the last episode. I thought it was a house. And then doing some research, I'm pretty sure they actually lived in an apartment building um but then um in the last scene like it shows that it's actually a duplex. I mean there's no way the neighbors didn't hear anything or notice anything. At least you know later on in the day when they come home and the door to their neighbors house has been open for how many hours.
0: Right. So anyway, I just thought that was a little bit odd that he is managing to keep this a secret and that's just part of the theme of the story where he's trying to keep it from the press. And then finally, it leaks out around episode three or four, and we're off to the races again. But that was one thing. The other thing that drove me nuts is that Andrew Garfield, can I just use his name as an actor? Okay. Andrew Garfield gets this call. There's been a double murder. He is not only a member of the police department in the small town, which has a limited number of police officers. I think they said 18 at one point. He's in charge. The police chief has left for vacation to Yellowstone for a week, which we find out about. He's in charge. And even if he weren't in charge, it wouldn't make any difference. You get your ass over to the crime scene. All right. You don't take the time to change out of your jeans and your shirt (laughs) and playing around in the yard with your kids and put on your suit and your white shirt and your tie. I understand getting your badge and your gun. Okay. That's fine. But he's taken all this time and I'm going, what the hell are you doing? Get your ass to the crime scene. Okay. Now, the, the dead bodies don't care what you're wearing when you show up, but it is such common knowledge now. I think it's out there. And the general public understands through TV shows and other things. The first several hours after a murder are the most critical because, believe it or not, the people who are the murderers are not standing still waiting to be caught. They're on the move. <laughs> all right. They are on the move. And statistically, if you do not catch a murderer within the first several hours after the crime, the odds of catching them go down dramatically. This is police stuff 101, right? This isn't like you have to have a lot of knowledge of it. I was talking with Richard Dutcher. I will drop his name as many times as I can during the course of this podcast. (laughs) And he was aware of it. And he hasn't worked with police to my knowledge, right? But yeah, it's something that people know. And then that's not enough. Now that I'm st- sitting there shouting at the screen, get to the crime scene. Quit changing your clothes. It doesn't make any difference. Now he's going to make another stop for fit. Fa- you don't need your hat to go and investigate. Right. Now he's going to make another pause to have family freaking prayer. Yeah. And I'm just pulling, I'm, I would say pulling my hair out, except there's an obvious punchline to that.
1: On one, on one hand, I totally believe that though. The prayer thing like i i can totally see a devout christian before they go to a, a crime scene kneeling down and praying like i can i can see that maybe they wanted to have the visuals of the, of the whole family kneeling in the first episode which which i can also understand but in practice it probably would have happened while he was driving this would have been a conversation he's you know like you know police light on sirens blaring driving down the street and praying while he's in route to
0: the crime scene. Right. And so this is another thing that this will happen throughout the series where it's only over the course of four or five days in the series between the murder murders and catching Ron and Dan in Reno. Actually, I think it's Las Vegas where they end up because it's at the circus circus, right? Yes. I think it was Las Vegas. That part was just a little bit confusing. There's part in Reno, part in Las Vegas, but it's the circus circus. And I know from watching, what was it, Vegas back in the 80s, probably when this freaking show was going on. You remember that TV show? Um, No, I was born in 1986. Yeah, well, okay. there's such a thing as reruns. (laughs) But I'm sure some of the listeners will know it. Anyway, uh, there was about a detective, Dan Tanna or something, and it was at the Circus Circus, and Tony Curtis was like the owner of the, uh, so anyway. But it was at the Circus Circus, and that's where they end up finding him, uh, finding both of them. So, but this is a constant theme, is that uh, you have Andrew Garfield, who continually is talking about, we've got to get going. If we don't make a right move, blood's going to be spilled. We've got to get going on this. We've got to do this. And he's saying these lines, which are the correct things to say. And yet throughout the, the, these few days, five days, he is doing anything but that he's going off and he's attending, um, a meeting with his Bishop for their kids, uh, baptismal interview.
1: Baptism. Yeah. That was, yeah. Episode
0: three is when they were doing that. Yeah. And then he wants to talk to his Bishop some more after that about blood atonement and his, his mom. And, you know, uh, she wants to kill herself. Is that okay? Like he really needs some instruction on that. No, it's not okay, but she can have medication, right? So, and then he's he's just meeting with, well, it's not recommended, but women struggle with their feelings
1: more is what he said.
0: Well, yeah. And they struggle with their feelings more. And by the way, you wouldn't believe the number of women in this congregation who are on medication. Andrew Garfield. Yeah. I thought that was good. Yeah. Blabber mouth. I know. Right. But uh, it's, it's Taba. Bill Taba, his companion, his companion, like they're on a mission, (laughs) his detective, right? His detective partner. He's he's the one who acts like a cop throughout this whole thing. And he's continually telling Andrew Garfield, go home, get some sleep, be with your family. And I'm going, what are you talking about? He should be sleeping at the station for maybe a few hours when he has to have it. But this is something where he's not going to be home. He's not going to be talking to all these people. He's not going to be going to church on Sunday. Right. He goes to church in that episode. And, um, you know, and I'm I'm just wondering why it is that he's doing this, because I keep reminding myself, you know, these two killers are still out there and they still have their list of new victims, which is part of the the drama that they're trying to uh, address. And he's going to church with his family. And I'm going, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, I I think this goes back to the fan service that we were talking about. They're trying to do this love letter to ex-Mormons and the point, the whole point of that interaction in the church was to highlight and this was episode 4 if I'm not mistaken, or maybe 5. The whole purpose of that interaction was for the bishop's wife to have this this guilt trip over them delaying the baptism of their daughters and the the line that she said was basically you know if they want to be in heaven with their daughters they need to make sure that they get baptized and it was kind of this this guilt trip to pressure them into actually going ahead with the baptism
0: yeah and that's where we find out that apparently uh Pire's wife has already had A couple of children, I can't remember how many, was it two or three who have already died, maybe in childbirth? Yeah,
1: they, They. I don't think they explicitly said if it was miscarriages or stillborns, but it was, that was part of what was kind of held over their heads. Like, don't you want to be in heaven in the eternities with your children that have already passed? And it was just a really unhealthy thing to say. And again, I feel like that's really compelling storytelling, but it it detracts from the the murder investigation. I mean that sort of an interaction I think is is really interesting. It's something that many of the viewers can relate to, but it has nothing to do
0: with finding out who killed Brenda and Erica. Small point on chronology. Yeah. All right. So We find out in episode seven that four days have passed since the murder. Okay. I mean, that specifically, we we get an absolute pin on that four days because he's talking about it has been four days since the murder. And uh, Andrew Garfield's comparing that with when things are happening with Diana, Ron's wife, right? Who's now in Florida. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To To track her down, she's gone missing. Yeah, and becomes this other huge distraction. I think. But I went back and I checked. And in 1984, Pioneer Day, which is, of course, July 24th. And you can double check me on this right now. I'd appreciate it, actually, if you did. (laughs) Okay. While you're talking, I'll go look it up. Was on a Tuesday. So 1984, July 24th is on a Tuesday. Four days after that, it's going to be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So Saturday is going to be four days after. July 24th. So that'll be July 28th, I presume in 1984. The problem is that by the time they get to episode seven, where they're four days out from the murders, Pyrie has already gone to church on Sunday. (laughs) And had that encounter with the bishop's wife outside the chapel.
1: Uh, July. Yes. July 24th, 1984 was a Tuesday.
0: So four days later would put them on Saturday. And they wouldn't have gone to church yet. No. I mean. So that is such a small point. I'm doing that mainly just to show that I really did try and crunch this down and try and do some investigation. That is not a huge thing in my mind. I I feel like the motive for some of these scenes was to highlight the
1: um, harm and some of the things that people say within these religious communities that I think is important, but has nothing to do with the story that they're telling.
0: Right. And I think it's at the end of episode one where they finally locate Robin Lafferty Mm -hmm. and they locate him. And, you know, I'm not going to go through all the details of how it is that they locate him, although I I wrote them all down. The thing is that they find him at a hotel on the second floor with his whole family. They're led there by somebody because they put out an APB on guys with beards. Yeah. Yeah they get a call from this convenience store guy and he says, yeah, there's one over there and uh, he's in this motel. So they bring the entire East Rockwell police department with them, which is apparently 18 guys and they've got Pyrie <laughs> and they've got uh, Taba with them and they all go up the landing and they all go through the front door. And of course, then they find out that Robin has jumped out the back window and is heading across the field. And I'm just thinking why? Okay. Anytime police go to arrest somebody in the front, they're going to put other police in the back. I'm just saying, because guess what? (laughs) Sometimes when police come in the front, people don't want to get caught and they jump out the window or they go out some other way. And that's why police 101 is, yeah, you station officers at any potential exit points while the other officers are going through the front so that, hey, the bad guy gets caught. But they didn't do this here. So he jumps out the window, starts booking across the field. No problem. They find him anyway, right? They find Robin. Yeah. And then a very strange thing happens, I think, which is that Taba's there, Pyrie's there, and Taba now gets all concerned about Pyrie and his family because Taba's saying, This guy knows you from church. You need to get back to your family right now because they could be in danger. And Pyrie does it. And I'm scratching my head because they're putting Rob and Lafferty in custody right then they're arresting him. They're taking him down to the station. He doesn't have an opportunity to contact his family and say, Hey, Jeb Pyrie arrested me. So go get his family. So I I was kind of scratching my head about that one. I didn't understand how that made a lot of sense. Anyway, if we're talking about police work. So uh, once again, Detective Taba is the police officer, and he does say to Pyrie that he's a recent transplant from Las Vegas, apparently. Yeah, he has just moved up from Las Vegas. And he's the one, and he's never been a Mormon, but he's the one who has all the experience with murders and murder investigations. And Pyrie doesn't, because they've never happened in this town. Right? Yeah, that's so, they made a point of, of um,
1: explicitly saying that.
0: Yeah. And so I'm also wondering why it is that they mentioned that the um, the chief is out on vacation at Yellowstone for the next week. And I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, so why isn't anybody contacting the chief of police about this double murder that just happened in his little town? (laughs) And I was talking with somebody about this shortly after I watched the first two episodes and they were saying, well, you know, they didn't have cell phones back then. And I said, yeah, but they did have a forest service. And we know that Taba contacts the forest service or Pyrie does to find out about those guys up in the mountain with the beards blowing things all the heck. Right. And Pyrie goes up there in episode two, not Pyrie, but but Tava goes up there in episode two by himself. Right. And so we know that you can contact the forest service and I would presume they'd be able to contact the forest service over in Yellowstone. As well. And then, as if to highlight the idea that the chief of police would actually leave contact information. So he could be contacted, you know, I don't know, in case there was a double murder in his town, in case something happens, right? He's the chief of police. So he's going to leave a contact number where he can be contacted. And he's going to check that. And as if to underscore this problem, with the storyline I don't think it's meant to underscore the problem maybe it is as if to underscore the problem with the storyline you have the patriarch Lafferty I'll just say patriarch Lafferty if it's Ammon or Watson or whatever uh and his wife right they're leaving on their mission to Louisiana and this is in episode two now but in episode two patriarch Lafferty talks to Dan Lafferty, who he has selected to be the head of the family, in spite of the fact that Ron's the oldest. And he, guess what he does? He gives him a phone number and he says, (laughs) (laughs) he gives him a phone number. It's on, it's on paper. And he says, there's not a lot of phones in Louisiana. So this is the number of the nearest ward building. Okay. So you can contact me and only do it in case of emergency. That's actually what he tells him. And so we're to think that the Patriarch Lafferty is going to do this when the chief of police does not. So that was strange. And I thought, uh, why are you guys not even trying to contact the chief of police? Cause I can guarantee you when he gets back in a week's time and finds out that you haven't contacted him, he's not going to be happy. You're going to have a lot of explaining to do, but then he does show up within a week. Okay. This is in a later episode. He does show up in a week, and there's a comment, I think it's made by Pyrie about, you know, uh, thanks for coming back early. Yeah. So, so maybe they does, did reach out? Yes, but it's not made clear. Yeah, there's no, there's no
1: point made of them actually reaching out to him. I, th- I think, narratively, they had to have the police chief away so that Pyrie could be the one to confront the church leaders, the stake president specifically, because the stake president comes in and he's trying to have the police release the Lafferty's because they're trying to preserve the name of the church. If you have the police chief there, suddenly you have to introduce this whole police chief character. You have to have a reason. like The whole conflict that they're establishing for Jeb's character doesn't matter if the police chief is there. If, if Jeb is the one making the decision whether or not they can be released, then it's, there's more, better drama for his character arc. So, they had to write the police chief out. They had to get him away from the scene so that Jeb could be the one to make that, de- that decision because it was, it was one of his first steps towards actually um, differentiating himself and his work from his religion. Um, Because up until that point, like you said, you know, he's kneeling down and praying before he goes and to the investigation Like he is, he's very devout. He's very orthodox. But then suddenly through these things that he's seeing and through the things that Alan has been telling him, he, he, it comes to a point where he, he branches off from what his priesthood leader is telling him to do. But if the, if the police chief is there, you can't have that scene. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen.
0: True. But he's in Yellowstone. You can still call him and say, get your ass back here. (laughs) And it's going to take him a while. Yeah. And yeah. Instead of
1: saying, you know, let's not call the police chief. You know, you could have the phone conversation. Hey, you know, we've had this double homicide. Oh, I'm coming back as soon as I can. It's going to be two days before I can get there. I mean, you could write that in and have it make more sense. But I can see why they did it. I just their execution. I would
0: have done differently if I were the writer. Right. Because at least for me, it jumps out at me because I'm thinking, are these guys trying to get fired? (laughs) <laughs> so and, and I'm trying to take notes on who is who in this thing, because it's this large cast of characters. I finally got the Lafferty's down, I think. And then I got their <laughs> wives down, I think. Right. I mean, you could actually have a trivia question based upon the number of people here. And the state president comes in and Tom is talking about this guy coming in and he says, look, it's Robert Wagner. And I'm writing down the name Robert Wagner is the name of the state president. And then I find out, no, it's not. He's just making a joke that he looks like Robert Wagner. Oh. Actually, his name <laughs> his his uh his actual name is when he introduces himself, I think, is Martin Ballard. Okay, okay. So they go ahead, not Melvin Ballard, by the way, but Martin Ballard. I feel like they had to make a they
1: had to make those decisions to get Pyrie as the decision maker for those scenes. Because if he's not, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter.
0: Right. Can I, can I bring up one other thing about police work that has me confused because I was watching episode seven and trying to rewatch it last night, actually finally fell asleep. i had been watching a number of other episodes before that, but I rewatched it this morning. All right. So it's fresh in my mind and I don't understand why it is in episode seven that Bill Taba, you know, the detective who actually acts like a detective. And of course, once again, he tells uh, Jeb, you know, go home, go to your family, you know, get some sleep. I will do the stakeout on Sandy's apartment. Now, Sandy is the gal at the Circus Circus who's the the waitress who has fallen in with Ron and Dan Lafferty. They know about the connection. He is uh, outside of Sandy's apartment to stake it out during the night. And we see him sitting there. In fact, he he flips open his Zippo and lights up a cigarette and he's watching the apartment. And he's watching The Apartment while Ron Lafferty, who, for whatever reason, has not changed his shirt since the murder. (laughs) Four days later, he must have been pretty ripe by that point. You would think so. Yeah. And carrying evidence around on your body is probably not the best idea. But, you know, uh, not all people do the best idea. Okay. So. I'm just saying that's a reality. That's a reality. So, uh, but he's walking up there. He's still got the same shirt on. And and Taba sees him walk into Sandy's apartment. And he doesn't do anything. And I'm, I'm shocked that this guy who in episode two goes running off into the woods after these kids who are obviously trying to lure him and do it successfully. And he falls in that little pit, right? Which thankfully there weren't any punji sticks at the bottom of. So he just hurts his leg, right? But he keeps going, and uh, this is—but this is his character that's been established in episode two. But now he just sits there. He doesn't call in. He doesn't do anything, and so there's no, there's nothing that happens there except he watches Ron Lafferty go into Sandy's apartment, and then later on they have to go through this whole thing of catching them at the casino. And this is especially confusing because um, Taba tells Pyrie. In episode seven, Pyre is so focused on rescuing Diana, who's now in Florida and apparently jumping at shadows. I mean, she's very scared. We can understand that, but she jumps at this. She jumps at that. She grabs the kids are on the videotape in the convenience store. They're running, they're running. And so obviously Ron Lafferty must be in Florida trying to blood atone Diana. Yeah. And, but he's not, he's never there. He was never in Florida. Instead, they end up finding, Oh, his, his, Right before they fly off to Florida, I'm going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You've got uh, Pyrie and Taba, the two detectives who are investigating this case, and they're trying to find these guys, right? And they think that Ron is in Florida. Okay, well, we know that the phones work because they call that detective in Florida who's a female, right? And it kind of surprises Pyrie, but she's the one who acts as really super professional throughout this whole situation, I think. And yeah, Why would you be flying to Florida to find Ron Lafferty when you could send a picture? You know, this is what actually police agencies
1: do. Send a picture. This is the man we're looking for. He's he's the one that we're worried is coming after
0: Diana. Right. And that would you know, if they went over there, that's fine. If they're only after Ron, maybe. And if they really know that Ron is there, maybe. But it's much faster to actually make a phone call than catch a flight to Florida. And thank God they, they're they on their way to fly to Florida. And then they find out, oh, well, Ron Lafferty's green Impala was just spotted. Where was it? In Wyoming? Yeah. Something like that. They had dished it along the way with their two friends. Right. And actually, so they go there and they all go up there. I don't see any police going in the back, but that's okay because nobody runs out the back again. <laughs> so they go up to this house in Wyoming and they find the two guys, the Rick and the, 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 the Chip and the Rick, right?
1: The two I, don't, Californians- I don't recall their names, but it was the two friends that were l- only loosely associated with either the church and the school of prophets. I don't, their motivation for being
0: there, like totally escaped me. Well, the story was, and there were four people in the car. Uh, the story was that these two individuals, excuse me, after the school of prophets broke down, that Ron and Dan started trying to recreate it by proselytizing new people. Gotcha. Gotcha. And that Sandy was one of those at the Circus Circus and that Rick and Chip were two of the others that they're trying to get together into this uh, this new school of the prophets. So that they, tr- they do explain that. And once again, going back over it and really trying to pay attention and take notes, I found that many of the questions that I had the first time through actually did get resolved The second time through a big question I had, which was confusing to me the first time through is when Dan starts practicing polygamy and his wife, Matilda, um, she's, they've got these two girls and then Dan starts, he's playing with them, you know, kind of, you know, tickle, tickle, if you know what I mean in the bedroom. (laughs) And then he starts talking about marrying them. And I'm going, what are you talking about? You're going to marry your own daughter. And I'm starting to think, and I'm thinking, is this your own daughter or is this Or or who are these girls?
1: She was not his first choice. He wanted to marry her sister, um, but settled, I think is the word that they use in the story that he settled for uh, Matilda. And she already had a a few children. And those are the kids that um, that is the girl that, that um, he marries polygamously.
0: Yeah. He has two, she has two girls. And this is what I meant by going back and watching it again, because she does say that explicitly in the first episode matilda does talk about her two daughters and this marriage to uh dan not being her first relationship and that's one of the reasons why she's like tainted goods right because she's been married before obviously been sexually active got two kids to prove it and so they are her daughters and dan's step daughters yeah okay so That's what I mean when going back, I can see that they're setting things up. Um, Can I mention something else? Not to take over your entire show. Okay, so some really interesting things that I started seeing had to do with uh, the way that Taba becomes a role model or a teacher to Pyrie. Yeah, he fills that,
1: that sage archetype for Pyrie where he's, um, whenever pyrie has a question or a problem, you know, it's this, this wise counsel that he gets from his, from his Paiute friend. Yes. And don't
0: say Tonto. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Don't do that. No, but he, but he really is a very, very strong character and he's the one with the experience. He's the one who acts like a detective, except that in the first couple of scenes, um, and this isn't really an accept that this is. And in the first couple of episodes, we have Taba who has been specifically directed by Pyrie to not notify Brenda's family <laughs> about the fact that she's been murdered. And also the, her daughter, her 15 or 14 month old daughter, it changes depending upon uh, the accounts I read, but it's right around there. And You know, it's just remarkable to me because that is so against protocol. And Andrew Garfield is coming up with a reason for it, which he says, before I talk to them, I want to know all the answers because I don't want to have to talk to them twice. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, what are you talking about? You think you're somehow (laughs) getting away with just talking to this family once? And, and by the way, you've got no, you've got no real leads right now. Why wouldn't you be talking to the murder victim's family to see what they might know and what leads they might have toward a suspect? I think for
1: scenes like this, and I've said it a number of times, but it's the narrative driving the logic of the story. Had had Pirate met with them day one, you know, or day two even, he hasn't gone through the steps of his faith crisis, if you will. Um, he hasn't had any chance to deconstruct the religion yet. So when these letters implicate a member of the 70, he's not going to believe that he's, he's going to side with the church because that's where he's coming from. It's not until later on in the storyline where he has defied a stake president, where he has defied, you know, the council to, to maintain the good name of the church. I mean, he's, he's taking these steps and he's slowly shifting um, his view of the church. Had he done that day one, he does not confront, he does not suspect foul play in the church. And, and you suddenly have a whole different story. For a decision like that, it's, it's narrative driving the logic. There's no other way to explain it.
0: Good point. So going with uh, something that I do see happening that is very intentional, I think that's very interesting in the story, is that Taba, he gets over to, oh, I think it's Robin's house and they got stuff that's burning. You know, they're trying to find Robin. This is before they, they encounter him at the hotel and arrest him. Right. Robin Lafferty. And uh, so he sees that stuff. He calls um, Pyrie, tells him what's going on, makes a comment about most good Mormons don't go to Disneyland with, you know, leaving a a fire in the backyard and uh, (laughs) fresh food or whatever it was in the dumpster. But uh, but then he calls. He goes directly against Pyrie's orders. And from Robin's house, he makes another phone call to Brenda's dad. And he advises the family that Brenda and their, their granddaughter uh, are dead. And so he doesn't get back to the, Taba doesn't get back to the the station before. Tyree has been contacted by Idaho police about it. And now he's really pissed at Taba for violating his direct order. And so they have a confrontation and there's a little bit of racism talked about, you know, by Taba and, uh, which I thought was a little much, but uh, it's okay. Only because he's doing it directly to um, Pyrie, who I think he understands, uh, doesn't feel that way.
1: I, I really liked their relationship. I liked the banter between the two characters. And so I feel like whether or not he understood that maybe Pyrie had some latent or unconscious racism, I think he did care for Pyrie and he understood him.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. But uh, the main thing isn't that confrontation. The main thing is that Taba goes against Pairi's direct orders in contacting the family, which sets up and serves as an example for Pyrie to go against his chief's direct orders about not mentioning anything about fundamentalist Mormons being part of their investigation when they have the press conference. And, of course, pyre he does get pressed He's not going to say it at first because he's got direct orders from his police chief. Don't mention anything about fundamentalist Mormons because, you know, the world doesn't understand the difference between us, the true Mormons, and those crazy fundamentalist Mormons. And they're going to think it's the same thing. Which
1: I I have never understood that a side note. Like, I, I get the motive for not wanting people to research some of the history and the motive for fundamentalist Mormonism. But the idea that you can't say that there's another branch of the church like just does never has made sense to me like why can't you say that's not us that's these other guys like the ones with the beards yeah that doesn't sully the name of the church at all like that just does not make sense to me and never has when i was a believer and on my mission and other times when people confronted me with something like that it was such an easy explanation like no that's not us actually and then you can explain why like it's it's such an easy
0: conversation. Like it just, that just never has made sense to me. Right. So then um, of course uh, he does that. And I thought that was nice because it, it shows that there's a connection there. There is storytelling that's going on. There's foreshadowing. There's also this idea of Taba playing the role model that even though he pisses Pairi off by going against his direct <laughs> order, now that gives uh, Pairi the cojones to go against his direct order. And of course, within the Mormon context, that has a lot of meaning. It's within the context of the police, which has its own hierarchy, but it also uh, spills over, I think, into the church, which has its own hierarchy as well. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm sorry. Did you have a thought about that, Mister Mister Ramyemptum Ruminations? Who show this <laughs> allegedly is?
1: It's all good. My my uh, shows are pretty short usually, so I, I have things to say, but. Probably not as much as you.
0: <laughs> well, you know what happens, right? I mean, what are we all set up for now after Pyrie does that and just like publicly kicks his chiefs in the nuts, right? Except nobody else knows that he's given him this directive except the chief and Pyrie and and Taba. And Taba, Taba heard it. And they had a, a really like tender moment right
1: after that scene where Pyrie has just stood up to his boss. And Taba, like, they have this really sweet moment. I
0: think I wrote it down. Let me see. Was that episode four or five? Oh, well, I could look it up. But you mean the one, uh, pardon my language, but I'm goddamn proud of you? Yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: I Like, that, that just brought a tear to my eye. Like, in so many of their interactions, they're such different people, but they see each other more clearly than anybody else. And they... They're okay with their differences and they respect each other's differences. And I, I thought their interactions were the best part of
0: the whole show, at least for me. And, you know, I, I said that at first to, uh, I believe that it's certainly one of the strongest parts of the whole show. And I would have said that their relationship is the strongest part and maybe it is, it's a matter of opinion. Of course. Uh, but then I kept thinking about Brenda. Yes. Her acting was like knockout performance, like just amazing. Yes. And she got to do so much to show how good she was, how strong she was. Oh, and by the way, by the way, the press conference, right, gets tied back into Jacob, the one who has the mental problems, the Jacob Lafferty, right? I think that when um, Ron is withholding medical care from his dad and causing him to die. That's right. Yes. He's making reference to
1: the fact that they did the exact same thing to Jacob. And that's why Jacob has um, a handicap as an adult.
0: I think it there was a problematic birth going on. Oh, was that it? I thought so. Once again, it's hard to understand uh, Patriarch Lafferty at this point because he's so debilitated and on, on his deathbed, right?
1: Well, th- you got to watch with subtitles. That way you don't miss any of the Oh,
0: shoot. Subtitles.
1: <laughs> Why didn't I think of subtitles? <laughs> I honestly, I don't watch anything without subtitles. I don't know. Something bothers me. If I can't understand some of the dialogue, I just get really irritated. So I I have to watch with subtitles, even if I've got, you know, volume loud enough to hear. You know what I
0: hate about subtitles? Hmm. When there's something clever or a joke that's going to be said and you read it before the punchline is given and it just kind of makes it not funny. (laughs) No, I, I, I can understand that. I can understand that. But he brings back Dan's journal. To the police station in episode seven, Jacob does. And then Pyrie makes it clear he did it because he saw the press conference on TV. Yeah. And I thought it was sweet that Jacob is talking about, you know, Brenda being his angel. Because, yeah, she was his angel. She was his angel. And you know something? She was also Matilda's angel, Dan's wife. Yes. And that's why watching it this.
1: And Diana, she her character played that savior archetype role for everybody in the Lafferty family. And, and it was really, it was really well done. And it, I love how they did her story and and bringing it in with Jacob calling her an angel was, was
0: really sweet at the end there. Yeah. I thought it was very sweet too. It did piss me off at Matilda though, for giving her up for helping Diana move. Now I know Matilda, she's under a lot of pressure. Matilda, you're under a lot of pressure down here. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand that in that scene right, where she reluctantly but she gives up uh Brenda in the move of Diana and saying, "Well, you know, um she planned the whole Brenda planned the whole thing, and I just thought you well, she crap. was there too, and yeah, it's yeah, it's she was tough. there too she, she was... sort of left herself out of that story right but uh, so, I understand her doing that but but still, it made me angry, yeah, with her that Brenda had been so good to her throughout everything and then you know she just cracks like a nut and throws her under the bus knowing that she's putting brenda's life in danger because they sent matilda over to give her that warning yeah
1: well that's like i i feel really conflicted with matilda's character and the actress chloe i I don't know how to pronounce her last name chloe peary or um, pyrie it's actually spelled p-i-r-r-i-e anyway um she I think she did a great job in the role, but I don't know that her the way it was written was compelling at least for me as as the viewer. She I think she was done her character was done dirty in the story. She in the end spoiler alert her, her part in the climax is this, you know, salvation moment, it's this redemption moment of Diana coming to rescue her out of polygamy. But leading up to this She has been a defender of their practices for, you know, she's pointing the gun at Brenda or pointing, you know, pointing the blame at Brenda for moving Diana. She's warning uh, Brenda that they're going to kill her. She's she's acting as a confidant to these bad guys. And for me, there was not a compelling switch, or at least there was there was nothing to me that indicated that she was conflicted at all by these decisions and in order to for them to have this this redemption arc for her you have to have that you have to show that the character is conflicted in order for me to have any sort of emotions about her being rescued and so that was my one of my biggest complaints with the climax is they they really dropped the ball on giving her a compelling redemption arc and and honestly all it would have taken would be an extra scene or two of her showing that she's conflicted about this, showing that she wants out but doesn't know how, showing that she's being oppressed and doesn't know how to escape this oppression. I mean, it's that storyline is is one of the most compelling ones that they could tell in all of this, but they just didn't give it the screen time that it deserved or that it needed for it to be a compelling climax because they gave it so much screen time right at the end of the show, but they did nothing to build up to that.
0: What do you think about the scene where she helps her daughters escape from the house when she knows that Dan's going to marry them? Yes. So that was
1: – that's the one time where you do see some internal conflict. But that's before she's siding with them on all of these other issues. You know, that's right. before she has – so she does, she does get them to escape. She lets them escape. But that's when she hasn't really accepted it. That's, you know, that's before her scene where they're driving and Dan is telling her about polygamy and telling her that that's what they're gonna do and they're speeding and they get pulled over and and they have that whole interaction. A great scene by the way. Oh fantastic. Uh, one of those wonderful scenes yes amazing that scene was really well done. Um, but this whole that whole escape well it happened in chronologically before the way it was told in the story the escape took place before they had the setup so. At some, like, to an extent, she's already accepting polygamy on one hand, but then rejecting it for her kids. But then as it goes down the road, I mean, there are these other girls that are introduced into it that just they get screen time for one episode and they're never really mentioned again. But they're told as wives of these
0: guys. The three girls from Canada. Yes. uh, Vancouver, B.C., which is a nod to the FL, the Fundamentalist Mormon. Yes. Group
1: that exists there. They show her character leading up to the climax being complicit and helping Ron and Dan. And for me, for that that rescue and redemption, for that to be compelling, you have to show her conflicted throughout the entire time. And I didn't get that. Okay, but that's that's just my
0: opinion, and you know, but well, you're welcome to disagree. Well, that's fine. I mean, this is why it's fun to talk about these things and listen to other people's insights. By the way, I don't want to leave that press conference. Yeah, yeah, you can keep going. And Taub is saying, excuse my language, but I'm goddamn proud of you, right? What is the thing that we are all expecting to have happen that never happens? I'm not sure, I'm not sure where you're going with that. Let me put a finer point on it. Pyrie has just disobeyed a direct order from his chief of police who's standing right there when he disobeys the order and says, fundamentalist Mormons, right? Yeah, for his boss to come down on him, there's no payoff. Yeah, there is never a, a confrontation scene about that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think about that. I kept wondering when the hell the the police chief is going to come in, charging <laughs> in, you know,
1: <laughs> stuff in the door,
0: and saying, "What the hell do you think you were saying out there?"
1: If I can change gears a little bit, I've I focused on some of the things that I didn't like. I want to talk about some of the things that I actually really appreciated with um, with the cinematography of the show. One of the struggles that a show like this will, will run into when they're trying to depict a faith crisis is how do you portray visually something that happens completely internally? How do you put on the screen in a compelling way for the viewer to see that Pyry is going through a faith crisis? And I think that the, the editors cinematography director, they did a fantastic job of this. What I'm referring to is when in these conversations between Alan and Pyry, when they're, when they're talking, they kind of jump around and maybe a little bit of an unrealistic way, but they jump around between telling Brenda's story and the events leading up to her murder and telling church history. And they're going into the events of church history as they relate loosely to the events that are happening around Brenda. The, The brilliant thing that the director has done here is they do really sharp cuts. And what I mean by that is they'll transition between the present They'll transition from that to Brenda's story, then transition immediately to Joseph Smith's story, then back to the present, then back to Brenda, then back to the present. And they're they're jumping around quite a bit. And intermixed in these are, are, uh, are scenes of Jeb, uh, Jeb Pyrie, and he's he's got really concerned looks on his face. And they're showing in a really compelling way how he's making these connections between the stories. And it's done... So masterfully, because typically when you do a transition from scene to scene, you'll have it really smooth. It'll be easy on the eyes. But these scenes that they're doing, they're jumping so sharp that it's almost jarring. And they do it in this, this beautiful way to portray this faith crisis. And in my mind, like that is, that is such an excellent way to portray visually this completely internal conflict by jumping really sharp cuts between all of the things that he's thinking about.
0: Yeah. And I thought that that was interesting, too. And actually, I didn't notice it as much as when you pointed it out to me, because we talked about this before. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. And you mentioned the part about the, the, the first vision kind of yes. thing.
1: Yeah. So I haven't said that yet. I'll, I'll mention it here, too. There was another really interesting thing. And in storytelling, um, one of my favorite theorists on storytelling, well, he was more mythologist, but uh, Joseph Campbell, he has this hero's journey. One of the things that he talks about at the beginning of everybody's story is a threshold crossing. Going through the forest, you know, passing, leaving the village, leaving what you already know. Whether you believe Joseph Smith's story is true or not, the the grove, the sacred grove, is a threshold crossing. And it's him going into the forest, he's leaving this world that he knows, he's he receives this inspiration and he comes back out of the forest a different person. And in episode three, they have a really compelling um they what they do is they they show a lot of the imagery from the first vision but they do it in a way to to highlight the changes that are going to happen very quickly to jeb so as jeb is going through this forest this is um the middle of episode three so at this point uh taba has been He's been injured. He fell in that hole that we mentioned earlier. He's being held up. There's guys with guns. At least he thinks there's multiple people with guns. Um, and so, pyrie is going through this forest. He's crossing this threshold. And as they do it, they pause. They don't freeze frame, but they stop. He's standing by a tree for a sec. And then there's a lens flare right over his head. And you have these this pillar of light. It isn't descending, but you have this pillar of light connecting from the sun directly to Pyri's head. And it was this... This beautiful callback to the first vision as a way to say, here's Jeb. He's having his threshold crossing and he goes out of this forest to this other side and he is confronted with fundamentalist Mormonism and it's put in his face and in his world in such a way that he comes out of this forest a completely different person. He sees the religion differently after he leaves that encounter with um, which brother was it there? Was it, was Sam. it Sam? Yes, it was Sam Lafferty. So it was Sam Lafferty and a number of the children that were there, he leaves that Rory interaction. Kulkin. Yes. Rory yes. Kulkin. It was Rory Culkin. Yeah. Um, little brother of Macaulay Culkin. Um, and he's never going to escape that I think. Oh, I know. Right. <laughs> so yeah, so it's, it was this really beautiful cinematography moment where they've, they've used the imagery of the first vision to, to highlight the fact that this is Pyre's threshold crossing where he's going to go and he's going to learn things that will change his world forever. And I thought that was such a beautiful way to portray that. And it wasn't it wasn't uh, by accident. I mean, that was, that was very deliberate the way that they had that right over his head.
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I also noticed that uh, they did a similar kind of thing with Patriarch Lafferty back when Dan is running for mayor and he's got the gypsy girl in the alley. And the other people are around and, oh, she's working her will over me and oh, she's making me kiss her and all this kind of stuff. And then Patriarch he comes in there and breaks up the party and he's doing his thing, right? But right behind him, right behind his head is the sun, which is doing this like angelic divine glow right over his shoulder as if he represents God. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so I thought there was a lot of beautiful cinematography in this. One of the things that uh, I think that was, was the most haunting was in episode one, where you've got uh, finally after Pyre gets his, you know, his suit on and has family prayer, he heads out in his car, and it's it's at dusk, heading up that lonely road. I thought that was haunting. Mm-hmm. Great visuals throughout the entire series. Yeah. And Brenda at the beauty pageant, you know, there's a lot of foreshadowing. It was was like there was I could see a lot of work put into the setup and the foreshadowing. Brenda's at that, you know, that lame beauty pageant. Right. (laughs) And we know because, you know, they're not all Miss America pageants. Right. They start somewhere on a local level. And that's where she is in Idaho. And she's singing the song from The Rose that was very popular at the time by Bette Midler. But she's singing the lot. The lyrics, some say love. It is a razor. That leaves your soul to bleed. Yeah. And I picked up on that the second time through. Also, when she's talking to her dad about she wants to go to BYU and study journalism because she wants to read the news. Which sounds like kind of an English expression. A news reader is what they call what we would call the reporter or whatever on TV or the anchor person. And then she says to her dad, yeah, I'm going to be on television. (laughs) And my comment there I made was, yeah, she is, but not in the way she thinks. Wow. So can we also mention this wonderful scene with Brenda at the studio? Yes. Now that was a fantastic scene. And uh, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody who's seen it knows what I'm talking about. they lock the door and. mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that, yeah. And he, he goes, she wants to, you know, try and be on the news. Why is it always men? Why are it always men and not women? And the response, by the way, this was confusing to me because she's at BYU. She went to BYU to study journalism. And I'm taking from this that she is at BYU as part of her journalism course, her TV broadcasting course. And they've got a studio there. And this is a professor. Who's talking with her, right? This is the impression I get. And he goes up there. Uh, Let me finish that thought. It was confusing because other people thought, well, no, this is a real studio. No, I thought, I thought she was a student still. I thought so too. But then in another scene later on, you have Ron and Dan Lafferty at home watching her on TV. Doing the news with that same background. Perhaps they
1: were broadcasting BYU, like BYU News or something.
0: And that would that would tie it together. That would tie it together because, of course, they would do broadcasts because that's part of the deal. So anyway, so if this is a professor, he's Mormon and, you know, she wants to uh, have him ask the people upstairs if she can read the news and not just be doing the the stuff behind the scenes. Right. And he says, OK, well, let's give it a try. And she says, great. She's standing. She's sitting behind the desk, the news desk. And he goes up the the steps and then he closes the windows, uh, pulls the black drapes over the window. So there's yeah, not ambient yeah. light coming into the studio. Makes sense. And then he, and then he locks the door. And as soon as he locked the door, he's like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Here it goes. Here it goes. And of course there's a reaction from her as well. And then he comes down there and he says, okay, do this. And she reads something and he says, now give me a big smile. And so she gives him a smile and says, Oh, you have such a pretty smile. And he walks up to her and he's been like coming on to her so bad. And then she totally turns the tables on him. Totally turns the tables on him masterfully. Oh, and she does such a good job of it. And this was excellent writing. This was excellent everything, in my opinion. But basically saying, yeah, well, I hope that you'll tell the people upstairs that it would be a good idea for me to read the news because, you know, if I told them that you lock the door on me when we are here alone. In the studio that they might find that newsworthy.
1: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> and he started to realize
0: he's oh, he just started to realize she's got me by the nuts. And she's squeezing. And so he's going, uh, okay, okay, I guess I'll do that. And apparently it works because then Ron and Dan are watching her later and she is broadcasting, she is reading the news. So I thought that was great.
1: Yeah, I thought that was, I thought that was awesome. And it's, it's a great way to juxtapose that you can be a faithful member of the church and fight for feminism and feminist rights. And then they, they contrasted that really well with these polygamous offshoots and how the women are being more subservient. And, you know, even in that same episode, that's, if I'm not mistaken, that's the one where they, they showed the conversation between Dan and Matilda where He's basically forcing his will over her to accept poly- polygamy. So they have, like, even even these internal episodes. You have these contrasts between, you know, this this healthy version of fighting for your rights, and then this oppressive religious
0: um, uh, theology coming down on on women. I do want to bring up the flashbacks, if that's okay, to church history. There's so many flashbacks in this thing. Like I, I said, there's flashbacks to the Lafferty's There's flashbacks to Joseph Smith and Brigham Young in church history. And then we've already mentioned there's even flashbacks within flashbacks sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, this is the function that Alan plays while they're going to keep him apparently on a life sentence at the police station so they can keep coming back to him every time they need to have more flashbacks.
1: They, they used him as like a sage guide character as well for the faith crisis. Um, so after he was no longer a suspect. That was his role. His role was to connect the present with the past in a compelling way for Jeb to um, deal with how these ideas conflicted. So he he switched from being suspect to being like, you know, a sage character for him.
0: Yeah, I kind of got tired of them going back to him. I, I did, too. It, it, they, it just kept happening over and over. And there was not there was nothing about um, Alan Lafferty that suggested to me that he had just had his wife and daughter brutally murdered. Perhaps that was the actor, uh,
1: Billy Howley. Perhaps that's him actually researching into the actual Alan Lafferty and um, realizing that the real person didn't really express much remorse and didn't actively try and help save his, his family. But again, that's just me postulating.
0: Right. Well, he knelt in their blood, right? To pray after he found them butchered. Mm -hmm. And it's unlikely that he's the one who called the police, isn't it? Yeah.
1: I I don't think that he would have been the one that called, um, in in the real, the real world. Alan was informed by Dan and Ron. I mean, thanks to this, this wonderful interview that you dug up. Amazing. Um, the real, the real world, Alan knew that they were planning on killing his wife and child. And his only response was, oh, don't do it while I'm, I'm there because then I would have to fight you.
0: He knows it months in advance. And that's the, rea- that's the real world, that he knew it months in advance. In the movie, and this is part of my difficulty in trying to decipher what's going on with the movie because I, I have a little bit of understanding about what really happened from that interview with Dan Lafferty. And, but the way they're portraying Alan is as a person who was very much involved with his brother's, and very believing in what they did and very much a believing member of the church. And then he has this discussion with Brenda, where Brenda's trying to get him away from his brother's influence. And he says, OK, but if I do that, then you've got to give me something in return. You've got to put your career on hold and we got to start having a bunch of babies. Which she does. And, which, and this is in the show. And apparently he does remove himself from his brother's influence. But at the same time, he is researching stuff on his own as well. It's not just Dan, or maybe it's part and parcel, but I'm not sure. But he loses his testimony of the church about a year before. And this was confusing to me, once again, going back the second time and rewatching, and then it became more clear that this is why he ends up having a copy of the Tanner's Mormonism, Shadow, or Reality. Yeah, that's the red book that uh, Pyrie has in episodes five and six. Right, because... Dan tells him no Alan tells him Alan Lafferty tells him that it was in my stuff that you've already seized you probably have an evidence but it's kind of disguised because it has a different kind of leather bound cover so that Brenda wouldn't find it yeah and know that he's he's reading this stuff so he's keeping the stuff from Brenda as well but within the context of the show I understand now what's happening more and he can be this person who not only helps with the flashbacks on church history, but can also help Pyrie understand that there are some problems with the church. Yeah. By the way, I talked to Sandra when I saw that. Sandra oh, Tanner? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What did she say? I said, congratulations. Uh, this is after episode six top. Congratulations. Your book made the show. And she laughed. She says, yeah, she she only found out about that. The day before that episode dropped. Oh, really? Who she told didn't even her? know it was going to be. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is all super secret, like some kind of big, you know, Marvel blockbuster movie. You got to keep everything secret. And you can't <laughs> tell the story. And then I let Sandra know until the day before. But yeah, she was pretty delighted about it. By the way, another thing about Sandra Tanner, when I talked with her about what she thought about the movie, she was at the premiere where they had the first two episodes. Her main concern about the movie was the flashbacks to church history, because she says, you know, I don't know how anybody's going to understand what's going on in those flashbacks, unless they already have a very in-depth knowledge of church history.
1: Yeah, that's, that
0: was one of my
1: complaints with it is they, if they're going to target this to an audience outside of Mormonism, outside of ex-Mormonism, they need to be much clearer with some of the things that they're portraying. And going into going into some of those flashbacks, I was able to follow the stories they were telling and some of the the differences that they made and some of the creative liberties they took with with the events of the past. But the average viewer that has only a passing knowledge—I mean, not a member of the church—the average viewer with just a passing knowledge of Mormonism—is not going to understand anything that's happening in those flashbacks. I mean, a, with the exception of a handful, some of the the massacres that they that they portrayed, um, the revelation on polygamy, but some of those scenes I think are self-contained enough that you could understand those without context. But so many of the other flashbacks, you you won't understand what's happening if you don't come to that with with prior knowledge the whole scene about william law and and um, brigham young where william law wasn't there but with the the printing press is what i'm referring to where they they imply that brigham young was the instigator for joseph smith's death um like if you don't have any knowledge of of these events like none of that's really going to make sense and that's going to be the only perceptive perception you
0: have of church history and by the way, if you do have knowledge of these events, none of this is going to make any sense. <laughs> yeah,
1: but but even if you are familiar with the church history, you're going to go into it and you're going to know where they're taking creative liberties and trying to tell, you know, this narrative, but it's 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 diffi- it's difficult to follow even if you do have that knowledge.
0: And the second time I was watching it, I saw that what they were doing dramatically with the show, which is that they are juxtaposing this idea that Brigham Young has to get rid of Joseph Smith so that Brigham Young can take control because there can be only one. And they're flashing back between that and the other flashback with Dan Lafferty. No, excuse me, Ron, it was Ron Lafferty, Lafferty um, confronting and the, his dad, the patriarch yeah, who's dad. very sick, and not allowing him to get the water or the medication he needs. And uh, not calling a doctor, right? In other words, basically withholding care so that he dies. Because there can be only one. That was the end of episode five. And that, that left me like speechless.
1: The way that it was shot and and put together was just beautiful. They They juxtaposed, you know, Ron. It, it wasn't outright murder, but he denied his father any sort of medical care. And then they showed that and juxtaposed that with... Brigham Young and his hostile takeover of the religion,
0: yes, and I thought um some people thought, and they may be correct, that um there's a lot of stuff in Mormonism that is historically accurate, maybe the wrong word, but let's just say accepted by the vast majority of historians, uh, including the idea that Brigham Young was not involved with Joseph Smith's death. In fact, Brigham Young would have taken a bullet for Joseph Smith. And in fact, Joseph Smith was uh Brigham Young was out campaigning for Joseph Smith, who was running for president at the time.
1: But they they needed to parallel that with Ron taking over the family. And so they they took Creative Liberties because they wanted that that really jarring comparison.
0: Right, they did. And this is getting back to your idea that you mentioned about the narrative driving the logic. Yeah. Because they they create this thing or adopt this idea about Brigham Young being involved in this conspiracy to kill Joseph Smith, which they don't hit super hard, but hard enough that it's hard to miss. And the idea that I've heard expressed is you've got enough stuff to talk about Mormonism, which is historically accurate. You don't have to go over here to fringe theories, because once you go over here to fringe theories, you undercut the credibility of the other stuff you're talking about, like Mountain Meadows Massacre.
1: As you said, there's plenty of material for them to take from to have a compelling juxtaposition like they did without them having to make up or rely on theories that we just aren't able to corroborate.
0: Right. There's a new film out, as you know. Which one? About who really killed Joseph Smith. Oh, I don't know anything about it. Oh, yeah. There's a new theory. It's a conspiracy theory. It was an inside job by Willard Richards and John Taylor. Really? Yeah. They weren't satisfied with the fact that Joseph Smith was going to get killed by this hailstorm of bullets coming inside the jail cell and from both sides, from outside through the window and from the landing through the door. So in the middle of that, John Taylor walks up to Joseph Smith and gives him the coup de grace with a bullet up through the chin.
1: Really? Yeah. It's
0: hard to believe. It's
1: tough. Like That's not something that I would probably get behind, at least not with any any evidence. I mean, we don't...
0: Well, you'll have to watch the show. I haven't actually watched the show. I listened. I I talked to the person who directed the show. And apparently it's based on ballistics and, you know, accounts of bullet holes and where they were and how many and all this kind of stuff. But I think that. How do you account for Joseph
1: Smith firing into the crowd coming up the stairs?
0: Well, he was trying to save himself. This is before he was dispatched by John Taylor. Okay. Or Willard Richards. I can't remember which one. I'll have to watch that. That sounds fascinating yeah so I don't want to judge it without having l- listened to the evidence, although I'm aware of it somewhat from the discussion I had. and uh, but I think it has a huge hurdle to overcome, which is if you grant everything and say John Taylor is there to do an inside job and make sure that Joseph Smith gets assassinated, why are you going to do it in the middle of a bunch of people outside and inside who are going to do the job for you? <laughs> By the way, the unlikeliness of Hiram actually saying i am a dead man after he gets shot and while he's falling was highlighted by how awkward that looked when it was recreated through the door boom ah oh, i am a dead man yeah it's just not the most natural line in the world
1: yeah well i mean perhaps that's us coming from you know uh, our vernacular from 200 years later but maybe that was them writing a more compelling death story than actually happened.
0: I think John Taylor may have written a more compelling death story than actually happened in section 135, which is of course where they got the line from. Yeah. Right. I he you saying, I am a dead man. Okay. I can understand falling and they're going, I'm a dead man. They don't do it while you're falling. I mean, I would think you'd have other things to think about. <laughs> <laughs> that's like,
1: uh, it's like getting your head cut off and then like still struggling for a little bit. Isn't that uh- yes.
0: Yes. Shiz. And then saying, I'm a dead man. <laughs> okay. So I've got to go to the, I know we' uh, there's so much to cover and it's, this is so much fun, but uh, this whole idea about Alan Lafferty being the guru, the guy who knows his stuff about Mormon history, and he's got to instruct Pyrie about it because Piri is just your basic TBM. He really doesn't know much. He knows the correlated version. He's got the faith in the leaders and he's busy being a hardworking detective and a good dad and a good son and a good father and all those kinds of things. Right. So that's the whole relationship between them. I did note that at one point, for whatever reason, when Alan Lafferty's is talking about the first vision, he specifically says that Joseph Smith was 15 years old. And I thought, is he going off a different account or something? Because he's actually quoting from the 1838 account of the first vision, which Joseph Smith is definitely 14 years old. He's born in December of 1805. This is spring of 1820. When I do the math, it's 14 every time.
1: Yeah, that is an inconsistency. But I mean, perhaps they're counting age the same way the modern church does. I mean, maybe he was just a few months shy of his 15th birthday.
0: Boom. Oh man. Good one. <laughs> yeah. He was a few months shy of his, his, yeah, his 15th birthday. Exactly. So that accounts for him being 14 and 15 at the same time. It's just that it was, it was only jarring to me because Alan is, I mean, he knows all this esoteric stuff, all this John Taylor letter stuff. And, and we'll get to that in a second. This John Taylor letter, but to, for him to fumble on Joseph Smith's age when he has the first vision without any kind of an explanation for it
1: struck me as uh odd. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's one of those details, you know, even if they're just, you know, changing things a little bit for the narrative, like it, just as with the city that it took place in the police department, why make a change like that? That just doesn't have any sort of, I, I just don't see the logic or the reasoning behind it. Nothing. Most of the other changes that I can understand have to do with the, the storytelling, the flow of the arc that they're trying to go with, but something like this, like, I I just don't understand why.
0: No, and I couldn't understand why either. I mean, I had a similar instance of being jarred when Alan's talking about the Mountain Meadows Massacre the first time, and he starts talking about 1859. But then I realized shortly, he's not talking about the massacre itself, which of course happened September 11th, 1857. He's talking about the bodies being discovered by the United States Army. And so then I understood, okay, okay. Okay, now I understand. So that would be an instance of using a date that I'm not expecting and then explaining it. And I go, oh, okay, you're talking about a different thing than the massacre itself. But then you haven't talked about Joseph Smith being 15. When I know damn well, he was 14. And I know Alan knows he was 14 with no similar kind of an explanation. And it well, makes he it- served a
1: mission. Then he's got the whole thing memorized. You know, I still have it memorized. And it's <laughs> how many years later?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is one of the most famous things. It's right up there with I, Nephi being born of goodly parents, right? It's something every Mormon knows because it's repeated over and over and over again. But one other, another thing that was jarring to me was the fact that we've established Pyrie's role as the TBM who doesn't know much about history, right? He says, don't know much about Mormon history. And Alan <laughs> Lafferty's going, Geography. I know everything about Mormon history. <laughs> and then in episode four, all of a sudden now, um, th- once again, they're back at the jail cell. They're doing the Alan Lafferty flashback thing. And Alan's talking to Pyrie and quoting this letter, which I'd never heard of before from John Taylor, but apparently it's the one that has Under the Banner of Heaven in it or something. So they keep coming back to that because it's the name of the whole show right under the banner of heaven. And uh, even if it doesn't have that in there, he's quoting something that obscure from John Taylor I'd never heard before. It may be and probably is more well known among fundamentalist groups. Yeah, perhaps. Than it is among TBMs or even people like me who've really tried to study Mormonism. But it's too vast. I've given up hope of ever understanding everything before I die because it's just one of those things that's too complicated, I think. But he's talking about this letter, and then he cites it, John Taylor, 1876. And Pyrie, who has now been established as the guy who doesn't know anything about Mormon history, shoots back at him and says, actually, it was 1879. And then Alan says, oh, wait, wait, it wasn't Alan. I made a note of that. This is actually Robin. It's Robin when they're talking with Robin. Okay, but still the same problem occurs that, that Pyrie all of a sudden becomes this expert. He suddenly becomes the Dan Vogel of the entire show instead, <laughs> of, the, instead of the Jeb Pyry of the show. And he shoots back 19, uh, 1879 and then Robin says, oh, well, there's dispute about the date of that. And now they're having this high level discourse about the date that this particular letter was written that I've never heard of in my life. And so you got Pyrie going for knowing nothing to be in the expert in the course of, I don't know, a day, hours.
1: I mean, the whole thing took over, took place over the course of like four or five days. So,
0: yeah, I didn't know. I didn't understand He's devouring
1: that. this information.
0: Yes. <laughs> and, and he's spending time at the library, apparently, as well as with the bishop, as well as going to church when there wasn't a Sunday in between. And he's doing everything in everything. He should be everything except what he should be doing, which is trying to catch these killers. Yeah. So that was one thing. Now, there's another thing I do want to say before time runs out, because I think it's I think it's significant.
1: Yeah. And I've, and I've got one more thing as well.
0: You want to go first? No, no, you're good. OK, uh, I'll come up with something. So I will have the final word. <laughs> oh, yeah. you can
1: have, If you want the final word, I can say what I was saying. But if if yours relates to what we're talking about now, go for it. I love wallowing in my own crapulence.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So there was a lot of discussion about these flashbacks and Mormon history and how strange it was. Uh, I mean, there are people who uh, criticize the fact that when they flashback to Joseph Smith's first vision, there is a light there. He is apparently seeing something going on in the sky that's casting this light, that there are apparently plates, even though they're covered. And so they're going, why do they have this stuff happening when no, that didn't happen? And then people from the other side are saying, why are they having Brigham Young involved when Brigham Young wasn't involved? And why are they having this happen when this didn't happen or or whatever it might be? Right. So you have criticisms from both sides of the flashback, of course. And the question was always being asked. Is this flashback supposed to represent what really happened? I'm putting air quotes on that. Or is it supposed to represent the belief of the person who's recounting the story? that is recreated in the flashback, which then allows for more uh, a liberal interpretation. The key to that is given in episode seven, when it's actually answered, when the state president, who's uh, I guess just about to brush his feet off or you know, dust his feet off. Yeah, dust his feet off on Jeb. Has this incredibly unlikely encounter with Taba when he recognizes that he's a Paiute And wants to go up there and shake his hand and says, we're old buddies, remember? Remember how we joined forces to get rid of the Gentiles out of Utah? (laughs) I got to put a pin in that for a second. I got to put a pin in that for a second. Because what they're talking about, we know the Mountain Meadows Massacre. We know it's 1857. I think if we know anything about LDS history, we know the circumstances surrounding why it happened. And this was just like a perfect storm a perfect storm of events that ended up having this happen, which was atrocious. Yeah, perfect storm of poor
1: choices and miscommunications, yeah. Right,
0: but the one thing we know from history is that this was not Brigham Young saying, we're not gonna have any Gentiles coming into Utah. Yeah. First off, there is no Utah at that point. There is a territory. And and I doubt that uh, Brigham Young would have been calling it Utah. I'm guessing Deseret, but regardless of that, this whole idea—this whole idea—is that we're not going to allow any Gentiles enter our territory, so we're going to dispatch and kill these people going through in Mountain Meadows. When that's not the way it was at all. In fact, Gentiles came through there all the time. The Mormons were because
1: per- they were going through the Oregon Trail. They were going past
0: Utah straight to my neck of the woods. Yes, yeah, so they would go up to Oregon Trail. They might go down to California, which is the direction that the um, uh, it's the Fancher Party, right? That, I believe that They so. were traveling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, go ahead and check that up. But that's, where, that's the direction they were going was down to California, which is why they were going through Mountain Meadows in the southeastern part of the state. Instead of going up through the northeastern part of Utah or the state. There was no state at the time. I keep I keep make, making that mistake myself. It was the Fancher Party, right? Yeah. 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 It was the fancy no, party. Salt Lake, Salt Lake City was perfectly situated because they made a lot of money by the immigrants, the Gentiles coming through Salt Lake City. And they needed to get new supplies. They needed to get more food. They need to get for their their family. They need to get for their um uh, their oxen, their their animals. And the way I envision it as I was reading the history is that. It was like Salt Lake City was this big 7-Eleven in the middle of. Well, And this is people counted on this. They counted on being able to. They didn't have to have enough supplies to get all the way to Oregon or California. They had to have enough supplies to get to Salt Lake City because they knew that they could then resupply and restock. And then yeah, they could restock go on.
1: And, get, and get moving further. Yeah.
0: Right. And with the army coming in, Johnson's army coming in. Um, in 1857, which is part of what led to all this. Yes. Um, Brigham Young said, we have to keep our supplies for ourselves. And we can't be selling it to the Gentiles anymore. And so the Fancher Party was not able to resupply. They were not happy about it, but they're on their way, and history takes care of itself. Anyway, what I wanted to say here. Oh, and also, of course, they have Brigham Young completely involved in it, right? Oh,
1: yeah. They, they outright have him, you know, marking them for death and saying, go and take these guys out. And, and then this is the version that the
0: state president is giving. This is his flashback, right? So even according to the state president's flashback, oh, excuse me, this isn't the state president. This is the
1: GA. This is, this is Taba talking when he says what's what's actually happening.
0: Well, here's here's what happens, okay? And I just watched it this morning, so forgive me if I have to correct you. That's all right. No, no. Uh, it's the GA who shows up there in Episode 7, right? He is the guy that is so broadly evil that you might as well be having John Williams' Imperial March play when he comes into the police station. You know, it's... Dun, 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 bum, bum, bum. I think that's the Imperial March. That is and the Imperial March. He's just evil. Yeah. He is an evil, evil dude. Uh, But this is his version. But this is the important part that I was saying is that he gives his story talking to Taba about how the Paiutes and the Mormons joined forces. And then there's this flashback, and he comes out of the flashback, and Taba's laughing, basically in his face saying, Well, us engines, Taba says, us engines learned a very different version of that story. And then later on, later on now, He's talking to Hyri and recounting what Taba's grandfather told Taba actually happened. And then they have a different version in the flashback. So I think that answers the question that the flashbacks are not intended to recount actual history, but they're intended to recount the history that is believed by the person who's telling the story that caused, yeah, that causes the flashback. So I thought that was huge. I was very proud of myself at that moment when I latched on to that.
1: That changes um, the perception of, of those flashbacks because they get so many things wrong. Um, I'll have to go back and watch then on episode five to, to see who's recounting the story of Brigham Young and um, delivering the letter through Emma to Joseph. I don't remember who told that one. And that one the was one of the most, Alan, but I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it probably was Alan, but
0: oh, can I say something else about uh, Taba? Something else about Taba that was very important was because he would be a very boring character if he were the guy who just knew, you know, this this Native American sage, you know, Gandalf to Pyres Frodo, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I thought it was really really interesting what the director did with this or the writer did with this is that. Pyri is approaching the murder in the wrong way because he doesn't understand the history of his own church that is so involved in this murder and how it happens. And he has to do his own investigation and come to his own realization, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Taba does the same thing. Taba misunderstands what happens, too because he's going with his training and what he understands to always be the case, which is that it, It's always the husband. So Alan is the one who did it and he's telling pyrie uh, Tab is telling Pyrie, look, you need to trust me on this. I've been down this path before. And in another place he says, and why do we always think it's the husband? Because it always is. And certainly most often it is, and there's a reason for it, but there are exceptions to it. And this is an exception to it, but is going with the rule that he's learned through his training, which is leading him to the wrong conclusion. At the same time, the Pyre's doing the same thing, but in a different way. So the last the last point I wanted to
1: make, and and this was something that my my thoughts on it changed a little bit as I thought about it more. When with the conclusion of the story, and again, spoiler alert: if you made it this far, then you've got lots of spoilers. But <laughs> the um, with the conclusion of the story. And the conclusion of this faith crisis story arc that they're telling it ends with Taba giving Pyri advice, saying basically to the extent that you can participate without believing for the people that you love, and it ends off with Pyri becoming you know the as as in the ex Mormon community community we say Pimo physically and mentally out. It ends. With him making that decision so that he can stay with his family, and um, it doesn't upset his his the the world that he lives in. And at first, I was really upset about this. I thought it was kind of an un like it just wasn't really a compelling way to to tie off the story. And I'm okay with loose ends. I'm not saying that loose ends are are bad or shouldn't be done. At first, I felt like it wasn't a compelling way to, to end this, this arc. I felt like there needed to be a little bit more. But as I thought about it, this, this took place over four days, four or five days tops. I don't think it would be realistic to have any other outcome within four days. When I think back to my own time and my own deconstruction process, four days in, I was nowhere near being ready to leave the church. And so me to put the expectation that he should be ready to leave and and throw his whole life in chaos four days into this religious deconstruction is just ridiculous. So as I've thought about it more, I feel like this is a very realistic ending to where things are. It's not the end of his story, but I feel like that's that's an accurate way to tie up this storyline of a four-day murder investigation.
0: Right. And when I watched that the second time as well... I was struck by the fact that he's not only following what Taba tells him. Oh, Taba chants, remember, as the, they're leaving the hotel and uh, Pairi's getting into the taxi cab and I guess leaving, I don't know, Taba behind to do I don't know what. But Yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Pairi's getting the taxi cab to go to the airport. You're on your own, Taba. But Taba does that chant. Yeah. The uh, the the Indian chant, the Native American chant. Yeah, this Paiute chant that he's doing. Right. And then Pairi asks him, uh, does that give you power? Because I think had said it it was, he says, well, no, I mean, it used, I used to think it did, but it doesn't, but it reminds me of home and everybody needs a home. Yeah. So he's following that as well. Even though I would say that the occasional Paiute chant is a far cry from having to live Mormonism 24 seven for the rest (laughs) of your life. Okay. But it's, but, but that's the connection being made. But what I thought the more important connection was, and I was surprised they didn't even do a flashback to this is that what Pyrie is doing is he is adopting the method that he learned from Alan Lafferty because Alan says that he understood the church was based on lies, you know, in secret combinations is his expression, but he's learned that a year ago, but then he realizes when he sees um, Brenda who follows him to his work but he describes it as if she's there when he gets there anyway that was a little bit confusing too but the main thing is that he realized that she was the most important thing and not his religious beliefs and that's when he said my family became my faith yeah and i was surprised that was such an important line and it was uh something that obviously Pyrie adopts at the end i was surprised they didn't have a flashback at least to that one thing in a series that was riddled with flashbacks. I was surprised they left that one out. And that would have been
1: a really great line to end on with how they, they
0: tied off Jeb's story. I was hoping the line they would end with was, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Aunt May. That's right.
1: But there, there were no spiders involved, no biting, no superpowers, at least not this time.
0: No. And every guess that Pyrie does, it seems like he gets wrong. <laughs> He's using his super more. What? Go ahead. I'm sure he got some right. Go ahead. No, he,
1: in the beginning, he didn't think that it was Alan, like right off, and he got that right. Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. The guy who comes up to us has blood all over him, which is their
1: blood. Yeah. I know. All signs point to this guy, and he immediately says, No, 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 not that's that can't be it. <laughs> no, I know this guy. He would never do that.
0: You know, and what happens when there's this horrible murder, this brutal murder that's found to happen in a neighborhood and some guy has killed all these people. And yet the newscasters go there when the guy's getting arrested and they go to the neighbors and they say, so what did you think of this guy? And he said, well, I had no idea. He always seemed like the nicest person. I'm not sure what point that was meant to illustrate.
1: <laughs> Can you tell me? Maybe that we're all capable of darkness. I don't know. No, no, that was
0: something that you had said that I was responding to. But I get to the end of my story and I can't remember what it was I was responding. to. (laughs) So maybe people who are listening will be able to to tell. Um, Is this is this a bad time to mention
1: the TV? No, no, you can you can mention it. But we're probably getting close to to the end here.
0: We're about six minutes and I hate to end on a, a relatively minor note. But the TV was on in Brenda's house, when Pyrie gets there, finally. Oh, that's, I I was leading toward that before, remember, after he gets his clothes on and has family prayer and gets over there. The TV is on where the bodies are, you know, on the floor. TV's on. And I made a little note, only because I knew I was going to be doing this podcast and I was going to be called to account. And I said, (laughs) is the TV on when the murders are committed? Or is it left on after the murders are over? And so I had that in my mind from episode one where the TV's on and I got to the end and know the TV was not (laughs) on. Well, the only thing I could think and I texted you this was maybe Alan
1: came in to watch his favorite show and there wasn't going to be a rerun. So he had to make sure he watched that before uh, before the police showed up. Or perhaps maybe Ron and Dan were watching TV for a minute, having a sandwich and then then took off.
0: Well, you know, Ron comes in, by the way, this was super effectively done. Oh, yeah. I cannot underscore how effective it was to see the murder through Ron's eyes and to see him watch Dan go up to the door the second time, obviously. First time she was out back. But to go up there to the door and then to force it open and to hear from a distance from Ron's point of view, bring the screaming and then the door slam and the noises inside. Probably Dan hitting her, and then to have him waiting, and then getting up and slowly walking to the door. He looks over, he sees the neighbor lady going into the duplex, and it's like, oh crap! One of the guys, Chipper Dale or whoever it was, Chipper, uh, in the back seat, will go, oh no, because here's somebody watching and seeing. And then she goes in. Okay, I w- and, and then Ron goes in, and it's in progress. That was. So chilling. I don't know that it could have been more chilling. I'm really glad they didn't show the actual throat slitting, but they showed it was horrible enough. I didn't want to see this happen, and it's not something I was anxious to see. I didn't want to see it, and I'm thankful they didn't show it. I think they did it in the most um, chilling, yeah, it was way chilling possible. But I think they did
1: it as tasteful as they could, given all of the circumstances and, and how it played out.
0: Yes. Now. When Ron goes in, it would make sense if someone turned on the TV to cover the sound. So the struggle. To drown out the sound. Yeah. But nobody does. Interesting. And so when they leave, there's nothing there's no indication that the TV's on. We're in the house with Brenda for quite a while. During the time that, you know, he comes up to the door the first time. Yeah, she's writing a letter
1: and she's narrating over the end of the show with this letter that she's written.
0: Right. Exactly. Because she puts it in the mailbox, right? And it goes out in the mail. The last and, thing, and it gets to Diana. Yes. In Florida. And then she, yes, exactly. And then she's reading it. And I thought that was very, very touching. Although the timing of that was difficult because she has to get, I mean, Ron comes to the door the first time, knocks, she's out back. And I don't know why she's wearing that skimpy outfit, by the way, in front of God <laughs> and everybody in her highly Mormon neighborhood where she obviously doesn't have any garments on.
1: Leave it to leave it to Mormons and ex-Mormons to really care about the underpants of their neighbors.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but she would care. She's a faithful Mormon, right? She would care. She wouldn't be dressed like that in the first place, and she wouldn't definitely wouldn't be tracing down to the mailbox in the front, you know, twice. But she goes out there. This is after Dan, excuse me, after Ron Knox the first time. She goes out there. She gets because she did. I hear something. Was there something up here? Uh, she was in the back. She comes through. Nobody's there because they've left. Right. She goes out there, gets the mail. Oh, I'm very happy. This is from Diana. And guess what? No return address. Yeah. Just like I told her. And they show the postage stamp or not the postage stamp, but the the stamp mark, the postage mark on. Yeah. The postage mark. Yeah. Right. And then she goes in and reads it and then she writes a response and then she puts it in the envelope and finds the stamp and all the other stuff you got to do. Goes back out there, puts it in the mailbox, comes back in and does all that in the time that it took them to drive down the road a ways, and then turn around and go back. Small, small thing. But the TV was never on. My point is that we were in that house with her
1: during the during the events,
0: for yeah. an extended period of time and before. Yeah. And before they actually came in to to commit the murders, TV was never on and it, there was never anybody who turned it on afterward or at least not shown. So like a small thing, I say, I think uh, maybe the bigger thing is the garments because are they trying <laughs> to send a message? And if they're trying to send a message with that, um, I'm not getting the message. It's, it's contradictory to what I would have expected.
1: Yeah. I, I, the, I don't recall any explicit point in the show where they're talking about the garments. I'm sorry. Any point in the, in, in the, the movie series. Yeah.
0: In the series.
1: Well, it didn't show the like symbols like everywhere. Anywhere. Yeah, Yeah. They
0: didn't didn't show the symbols, did they? Well, yeah. Well, they did. uh, Certainly when um, Ron Lafferty's oldest daughter is cutting the markings out of his garments, which also was very strange. Yeah. Because that's not like the first thing that I think would occur to a Mormon girl who's really upset with her dad for beating up on her mom. But maybe it is. So she gets all the marks out of his garments and he's deranged and he puts them on and goes parading around in them. Remember? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot of garment talk in the, in the show. I just, I, what I was referring to is
1: like, there, there wasn't like an explicit like tying of like how often they were supposed to wear it or any direction of the like requirements of the garments. Um, I'm just like thinking as like a lay audience member that doesn't know anything about Mormonism watching this. Like, I don't think that's something that's going to even occur to them. uh, Like in the actual scene of the murder that she's not wearing garments.
0: Right. And like I say, it didn't even occur to me the first time. I was so involved in what was going on. Yeah. And so dreading what was coming. I just thought she was like
1: sunbathing in the backyard or something. That's what that's what occurred to me.
0: And and maybe she was. Maybe it was maybe it was that simple. But of course, when you're making a show that's obviously made for Mormons, by Mormons, for Mormons, Mm -hmm. then and and It just seems like that is a detail that was put in there intentionally. And if it wasn't intentionally, then maybe it required an explanation of some sort. So now we're here talking about garments and everything. Do you
1: have any final remarks?
0: I think the very fact that this was fruitful to watch it a second time for me and probably would be a third time is the best compliment that I could pay to this series that there's an awful lot that's going on. I I think maybe sometimes too much was going on. There were too many messages that were being given by the director and the screenwriter. But I think that it really held together. There was a lot of work that went into foreshadowing and having these different contrasts that you're talking about between similar situations going on between the flashback and what's going on in real time. I thought that was really, really, um, I thought it was a remarkable piece of filmmaking. And my, my comments that may be construed as being critical, I hope they won't be taken that way. I think there's probably, you could do the same thing with any movie. Oh, of course. Of course. Even the new Top Gun movie, you know, as
1: great <laughs> as that was. You know, I haven't seen it and I wasn't planning on watching that.
0: Okay. So For as many movies as I Wait a second. You weren't planning? Mm-mm. Are you, can I just tell you something? This is better than the first movie by like 10 times. It is so good. And the amazing thing is that the amazing thing is that Tom Cruise has not aged a day. <laughs> I, I recommended a movie for you to watch.
1: If you have oh, seen sure? it, then I, I promise I will go I and haven't. see Top Gun. <laughs> Whoa, what was <laughs> it?
0: Everything, everywhere, all at once. I wanted to see that. And then I went and saw Doctor Strange 2 for the third time. <laughs> see, I so- <laughs>
1: <laughs> see, I went into Doctor Strange and I was like, that's not the
0: best multiverse movie I've seen this month. I mean, isn't that crazy that you would have multiple multiverse movies, not for Marvel? I mean, one of them for Marvel, obviously, but then just showing up at the same time. What but are the if, odds? If you if you
1: go and see everything everywhere all at once, I'll go see Top Gun. Deal.
0: Okay. And you will not be, and I know I will not be, uh, what do you call it, disappointed. You will oh, not yeah. be disappointed at all. Tom Cruise is just, he's great as Maverick.
1: So um, when are we going to return and report then?
0: At some time in the future. But this was another thing. We're, we're closing up. I know this is another thing, though. Right. Another thing about, do you say Chekhov's gun? Yes. As opposed to Chekhov's phaser.
1: <laughs> yeah. As opposed to Chekhov's phaser. Exactly. Yes. If you're going to show a, if
0: you're going to use a phaser later on, you need to show it. At the, yes. In, act in one. the first act. Mm-hmm. If you're going to show it in the first act, then it needs to be fired on stun in act two. So. The testimony bearing. This whole thing about Pyre, he's got to bear his testimony because, of course, he's going to go to church again.
1: That was a big conflict for the last part of the the series.
0: Right. And at at least this part, um, I'm just thinking about it right now, chronologically makes sense. Because the second Sunday after the 24th would be fast and testimony meeting, right? Because that would be the first Sunday of August. Okay, so he's supposed to bear his testimony. And he is so worried. He is so worried because he says, if the leaders hear even a hint of doubt in what I say, then I may be single by fall. Remember, I I was watching that part with a non-member. When his, his wife explicitly says, she's, she tells him, I
1: want you to bear your testimony so our girls can hear it over the pulpit.
0: Right. Because they're having a problem with their dad. And I'm going, why are there? Why are these eight year old kids having a problem with their dad? Why would they be suspecting anything? Unless, of course, someone's filling their ears with things, which is the only rational reason. Um, but anyway, yeah, I want the kids to know that their dad has a testimony, barrier testimony. He's worried about it. If the leaders hear any hint of doubt, then he may be single by fall talking about the, the power the leaders have over this stuff. and. Uh, that was that just rang untrue that part and like i said i was watching this part with a non member and she says to me really because this is this is what they this is what they would do and i said mm, no no that that part's not right that would not happen where they're up there i don't know they have their e meter out or whatever it is they're doing <laughs> to measure a person's <laughs> truth while they're telling you know bearing their testimony right and so and then if it's not up to snuff you know if you don't hit 100 on the truth uh, device, then uh, we're going to take steps to break up your family. Now, family certainly can get broken up. And it was heartrending, of course, when she's telling him when he's out reading the Red Book in the car um, that uh, I love you, but I can't do this struggle. I can't do this struggle with you or something like that. That was heartbreaking because, you know, I love you, but I can't go here with you. And that's what he really needed. Having said that, The idea that the leaders would be doing this because he couldn't sound honest enough was was problematic. But it also brought up this comment from this non-member and the fact that people who are watching this are going to take this as what Mormonism really is. And I had to keep drawing the distinction between Lafferty Mormonism, which I said, you know, there are Mormons like that. Who take this stuff really seriously, go back to earlier teachings, this is the true stuff, and have this really uh, patriarchal, uh, uber patriarchal kind of view of Mormonism. But then I'd say, but contrast that with Brenda's family, who was put there. I mean, obviously they're all real characters, but they are portrayed in such a way as to be this contrast.
1: Yes. Yeah. They were trying to show what regular, active believing members look like.
0: Yes, exactly. And so, um, oh, we've got to go. But I want to just mention this wonderful <laughs> this wonderful scene.
1: You know, in general conference, when the the speaker is going over, there's yeah. a little light that they put on to tell yeah. them that their time is coming up. I, I just want to let you know that the, that the light is on.
0: <laughs> LeGrand Richards, I'll be LeGrand Richards in this because he would ignore the light and he would make, who was it, Ezra Benson hit him on yes. the leg with his cane. Or whatever it was, you know, <laughs> that was great. Loved him. Ah, uh, for the days of LeGrand Richards. But uh, episode two, I think it was, could have been three, when Alan is now meeting Brenda's family. And there's this wonderful scene where he's trying to impress Brenda's dad. By playing with the little kids. Oh, no, this is this is later. I was going to okay. make a comment about this. for He's trying to impress Brenda's dad, obviously. You know they're like together he wants to make a good impression on it, who's, who he hopes is going to be his future father-in-law. and he keeps per, he keeps portraying the Mormonism he's learned from his dad, which he doesn't really even believe anymore. but he's trying to portray this Mormonism from Laffer- Lafferty Mormonism to Brenda's dad. and Brenda's dad is not, not only not impressed, he finds it offensive. Yeah. so there's this wonderful lack of communication going on where Alan's trying to impress Brenda's dad with the Mormonism and the strictness of the Mormonism that he grew up with to show he's a good Mormon. And Brenda's dad is looking at him saying, are you crazy? Yeah. (laughs) But then he goes outside, right? He goes outside with the kids. It's a beautiful scene because what he's doing, he says there's the first star. They've got the fireworks at Christmas. I know fireworks at Christmas in Idaho. Maybe it was New Year's. They might might have been doing that. It must have been New Year's. Okay, so they got him for New Year's, and he's out there. We're going to shoot that star with the fireworks, right? And then he ends up uh, setting the house on fire. But I thought this was a beautiful metaphor. Now, whether it's intended or not, I don't know. But what I took from it was this metaphor of this whole idea of this fundamentalist Mormonism that Alan Lafferty represents, being a case of trying to shoot to the stars, and in the process, burning your whole house down.
1: Yeah. And the dad was definitely, the father-in-law was not impressed when he came out to see that the house was on fire. (laughs) No, no. And of course, what's
0: happening? Well, you've got Alan out there who's trying to put it out with snow, a very fundamental, basic way of trying to put out the fire. And Brenda's dad comes out and says, here, get out of the way. I've got the fire extinguisher. Mm -hmm. A modern convenience, right? And puts it out immediately. Yeah. So like I say, I don't know if all of this is intended, but I'm seeing a lot of things like this in there. And by the way, my final, final comment, another favorite scene I had was the chocolate scene.
1: Oh, yeah. When the dad offers him chocolate and he's like, there's a little caffeine
0: in here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need you to eat this chocolate. <laughs> that was the point at which the actor who played, you can check it out, Brenda's dad. He, he stole that whole scene. He was just incredible. And you're looking it up, I know. But yeah, he was just, there's so much talent involved in this show. I was really, really impressed. And so I hope that my, my, my criticisms of police procedure and stuff like that uh, are not interpreted as taking away from the overall impact and a lot of work and wonderful things that went into the show. I know they had a limited budget, but when it came to the attack on Carthage Jail, I did envision that Carthage, the city of Carthage, which is the county seat of Hancock County, had more than just one building in it, <laughs> which was the jail.
1: Well, I, I, I agree. I've been pretty critical on some of the things that I've said. But overall, I absolutely loved it. I loved the performances. The writing was fantastic. Just a, an excellent series that I do plan on watching all the way through at least one more time. Um, so for, for all the criticisms that I had overall, I, I absolutely loved it the experience of watching this show.
0: So many great performances, so many great scenes. And um, yeah, I think it's very, very interesting. And I was very, very happy to find out that the flashbacks were not necessarily intended to be historically accurate.
1: Yeah. And one more plug for uh, the actress that played Brenda. Um, She's got a movie coming out later this year where the Crawdads sing Daisy Edgar Jones. She's amazing. And that movie is going to be really good.
0: Maybe we can go watch that together after we've seen Top Gun and Anything Everywhere all at once. Or is it Everything Anywhere? Everything Everywhere all at once. You know, that's, that's not an easy
1: title to remember. When you watch the movie, it makes a lot of sense because the title is in parts and the movie is in parts. I'm guessing I'll understand
0: that better after I've seen the
1: movie. Yeah, it's, uh, and you'll never see an Everything Bagel again in the same way.
0: I can't remember the last time was I saw a bagel at all.
1: <laughs> There's an everything bagel? For for the listeners that have seen the movie, you'll get the joke.
0: So is this like a bagel with everything on it? It's a bagel with everything on it. Okay. All right. Well, now you've really piqued my curiosity. <laughs> and after I go take a, a long nap, I may, <laughs> I may get up and go watch it at some point. But tonight's Jurassic Park. It's opening night. That's true. That's true. Hey, I'll make the drive up there. That
1: would be super. I look forward to it. <laughs> you buy the popcorn. I'll get the tickets. You buy the expensive stuff. I've got the AMC Stubbs Pass, so I'll get the tickets. They'll be cheaper for
0: me. Oh, we get the, the express line. That's right. Fantastic. I'm too cheap to do that, so I'll go as your your date. There you go. It's, it's a date. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. I hope that I can get this audio and put it up on Radio Free Mormon as well. Of course.
1: I, I plan on posting this um, Monday, so it'll come live on the 13th, and then um, I'll send you the audio shortly afterwards. Okay, great. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure for me. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on to the show. You bet. I'll talk to you later. Yep. That was a fantastic chat. I enjoyed my conversation that I had with RFM. He is brilliant, and his insights into the show were very insightful. Thank you for sticking around to listen to the whole episode. And as always, I hope that you have an excellent day.
0: Well, that concludes the movie review of Under the Banner of Heaven between myself, RFM, and Ramiumptum Ruminations. RFM and RR, putting the fun back into fundamentalism. That's about all for tonight. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, broadcasting behind enemy lines.